Welcome to episode two of the Ultra Low ISO Club. It's a weekly podcast with hosts Edward Conde, Jason Konopinski, and Michael Bartosik. We spend an hour each week chatting with members of the Ultra Low ISO Club Facebook group. This week, our guest is Dustin Nickerson. Dustin discusses his transition from digital to film, why film hooked him, his first experiences with black and white film, and why low ISO films pair well with classic cameras. We indulge in a bit of pre-show chatter, take a few side trips along the way, but Dustin is a fun and fantastic guest. So stick it out to the end and find out how we got Ed to expose his dirty little secret. Pre-show chatter. Pre-show chatter. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to take this one nine apart. Oh shit! You said the season up. Yeah, it's so the focus ring was super tight, and I worked it, um, just like moving it back and forth, and the tent like it seemed to loosen, and then it just it like it's like takes Herculean strength to move it. I had a little Fajuka half frame that did that. It was kind of tight, and after a couple of turns, man, and then it just like froze up. I thought about putting it in the oven, something like that. It was only like a couple, like 20 bucks or something. But I ended up trying to mm-hmm. take it apart, and I couldn't even figure out how to get it apart, so I gave up on it. Mm. I'll just, I'll take it to my guy, and he'll, Chris will take care of it for me. Yeah, your guy seems pretty cheap. I called him about a, the Pentax uh, spot meter, the four. Mm-hmm. I, I need to send it to him. He said he would look at it. Uh, it does some weird stuff. Everything works, it seems like, except for whenever you pull the trigger to actually meter, then it it like drops to zero and then hangs out to zero for like half a second, and then it just falls off to nothing. So I'm sure oh. it's a power issue or something in there. Yeah, but- I actually repaired my four. Um, the outer dial the one of the screws backed off and it just fell off oh wow oh damn so you know so not really like can't really use it at that point but there was nothing wrong to the you know to the internals it was just one of the um tiny little set screws backed off oh yeah so i figured i'll send it in if he can fix it great if he can't then he'll have parts yeah, he's a good. He's a really good dude. I just, you know, I, I what what amazes me about Chris is that he's been doing camera repairs for probably thirty, maybe close to forty years, and um, he can often diagnose a problem by you describing it, and not just in a gross sense, but like specific to a particular body, a particular model, he can know, he's like, that's what that is going on right there. Sounds like a mechanic. It's it's actually pretty incredible. <laughs> that does sound really incredible. Mm-hmm. What if he sends yeah, you a know, note back uh, with my camera? Your camera's not broken, you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was like my, uh, he had a, he had a uh, Yashiko 124 Mat-G that somebody had dropped. And took some the it took a little bit of side impact on the crank side and he could tell just by the feel that there's a plate in there that grab that the um, the crank grabs and that the impact had knocked it out of alignment he could just feel it wow just by kind of wiggling a little bit he's like there's a plate right here and this is how it works 
I had, uh, I took, I gave him an SX 70 that the, the mirror, um, wasn't coming all the way down. So it wouldn't fold flat. And he just showed me how to walk that wheel back so that the mirror would return and the whole thing would flush, would, would fold flush like it's supposed to. Does he work like just on anything or is it just specific? I think he pretty much works on anything. Okay. So that's an interesting because you hear everybody talking about how there's not enough techs out there, not enough people doing it, but like your guy, I think nobody ever heard of him before except for local folks, you know, so there's probably a shit ton of these local guys that are out there mm -hmm. doing this. They just get no exposure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he, like, he's kind of preferred to fly under the radar like that, you know, just he, you know, he's where he's, he took ownership of this shop. Um, think about less than 10 years ago. He was the, he was the, he was the, the, the tech and really just managed the shop. And then the, um, the owner got sick and, and he sold the business off to him and actually just, the owner just died like a year and a half ago, but he's, you know, he had worked at a couple of different shops and local schools, um, local TV stations when they were shooting on film, he was, he was working on every camera that they had. Wow. Yeah. He may be, he may be my guy too. Then. <laughs> Yeah, he's a really good dude. You'll you'll like him a lot, Dustin. Because you don't hear you don't you know the people you do hear work on it. You hear the same names over and over. And some of those guys charge a premium, but you know their time's important as well and what they do. Because mm -hmm. definitely, if I trap myself that I'm going to cost myself four or five times that amount getting a. Oh yeah, yeah. How quick? How quickly does it turn things we're, around? We're having the other. Um, it depends. I mean, you know, it, it, for, for me, because I'm in the shop so often that I'll just leave stuff with him. And when he gets to it, he gets to it. Gotcha. Um, but if he's, if he's doing, you know, if he's doing repairs, he's turning them in a couple of days, you know, unless they're very complicated. And, right. Right. Uh, you know, now that he's partnered with Mike, who I'd mentioned on the last show, um, Mike, kind of has worked a couple of deals where now the shop is they are doing basically what they've done is they're the white label repair shop for um film supply co okay just on the east coast mm -hmm. and so that has meant you know just the volume of repairs that they're doing between the two of them it has increased pretty substantially yeah um and he's still doing you know two three maybe four day turns turnarounds okay that that's impressive yep we, we just had um there's a guy in not too far from my office i who was doing repairs and i just stopped in there and he told me last week that he's closing his shop i think effective tomorrow which was which was a bummer he's been there for like 25 years hmm. he just said he wasn't getting enough work to keep the doors open and all the work that was coming in was for film cameras and he had mm. no film techs left. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an internet when you, when you talk to those small shop owners that they're not just doing repairs, they're actually running a retail operation as well. They'll tell you that <clears throat> film processing and Film, film processing and um, sales of used equipment is what really sustains them because they don't make, they're actually not making any money off the sale of a digital camera. 
it is kind of like a one price and you're done. You don't have to buy anything else other than accessories at that point. Well, it's not even it's not even the accessory stuff. It's that the way that like so they're a Canon dealer and a Nikon dealer. Um, Canon for every they they only make like ten or fifteen dollars off the sale for a new camera. So you know, new Canon rolls off the line and it, and it hits the shelf. They might spiff it, so there might be an incentive for them to sell it. Mm-hmm. But the way that Canon works their their deals. If it if they're not actually making um, a very small profit, so you're talking like at most fifty dollars for a five thousand dollar camera. Um, normally, what Canon will do, and he may explain to me, Canon will um, just discount off the next order. You know, so that they they get it, they get better pricing for buying in based on the sales of actually making making any money off the sale of that camera oh yeah i get it so the more you sell the better front-end price you get yeah and then then that may open up some you know additional product lines but they're not actually making they're not actually making anything per unit or at the minimal sounds about selling cars then yeah similar structure i think That's that's just that's sad, really. And it almost sounds like the camera manufacturers are making the store float the cost of of everything. Yeah. Well, it's what Canon used to, or uh, Kodak used to do with all their processing equipment. The stores had to what, buy it from them, and then essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. You you know, it's just if you're buying a lab, you're buying you know, like that's a that's a forty or fifty thousand dollar cash outlay. And then, and then you're wrapped into um, basically what, what what I understood with with was on um, some podcast a while back. He was talking about and Taki used to be the uh, big head taco. Oh yeah, it used to be like the, the the regional or the North American sales rep for Canon in Canada. And so he headed up their their entire sales department, and he said, "Well, when, what they were usually doing is labs would get chemistry and paper for free for the lifetime of their contract, hmm. but they're still they're still buying a you know a, a processing unit that's five large." And that's, so you got to process. You got to process a lot of film to make up for that initial capital investment. Yeah, a hell of a lot of film. <laughs> you're you're in it to win it now. <laughs> Crystal does like they do a ton. I mean, they're doing black and white. They're doing C41. They're doing E6. Yeah, see, I, I think that's what uh, the the local shop that I have where we had the closing. I think that was his challenge. He's not a he wasn't a retail space. He was only a repair center. Yeah. And I think he's also a Nikon service uh, repair center as well. Yeah. He was a certified Leica Nikon um, tech. And the, the former owner actually uh, is the guy who replaced the shutter curtains and, and did a CLA on my Leica 3F. Um, he didn't have any Leica techs, but he said the, the former owner that he bought it from 20 some years ago was still around and could do it. So he sent my camera there and had that guy do it. Hmm. So, so he, he still had some connections, but yeah, he just, he, 
You know, he was mostly repairing. He told me it, towards the end, the contact six, four, fives for wedding shooters. But then he, I guess he lost his uh, contacts uh, tech. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting world, the repair world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it makes me nervous when, you know, like, I know um, Yi up in Boston, he's getting old. And he's kind of like the guy to send Nikon or Leica stuff to. Mm-hmm. But um, and he's, you know, <laughs> he does this quick, like, you send him an email, he'll send an invoice, and he's out a week. Oh, thank you. I think you broke you're up there of, for a second. Yeah. Oh, uh, did I? Hang yeah. on. Let me get closer. I said, you know, that the <laughs> Yi up in Boston is, um, I mean, he's getting older. You know, at some point he's going to, I don't know if he's training, if he has other techs that he works with, but he's kind of the guy to send um, M body Lycos to. Yeah, he's got a his uh, sales model is kind of weird too. You send him something, then like I sent him an email about working on my three C, and then he sends me back an email saying, "Hey, the turnaround time is about three to four months, but if you want it in three weeks, just put rush on the box, and there's no extra charge." I'm like, "Why in the world would you tell people that everybody's gonna put yeah. rush on the box?" <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's, a, that's an interesting uh, strategy. I'll, I'll do it quickly if you ask me to. Otherwise, I won't. <laughs> yeah, otherwise it's going to sit there. But now I don't know if you've ever dealt with his. Uh, if you've tried to buy anything or send him questions about buying anything, he'll he'll direct you to uh, Steve and man, I can't remember his last name. I got it in my contacts, but that's the guy that handles all his uh, like sales of Leica M bodies or screw mounts and lenses and everything. That dude right there, I called him a couple of times and. He's a wealth of knowledge, and I know Michael had asked me about screw mounts on the M body, and that guy, when I called him, was talking to him about buying a was the fifty dual range and M mount, and he's like, mm-hmm. "Well, if you if you've got a you know a screw mount and an M mount, he said, just get a M mount to screw mount adapter and just shoot the screw mount lenses." He said, "Because there's tons of them, they're all high quality." He said, "You know, I'd love to sell you this one." Or whatever, but and he's not trying to sell you anything that he don't think you need either. He gets kind of a feel for who you are and what you want to do. Mm-hmm. But according to him, he's got a wealth of screw mounts, and he says they work fine on the M mount. And there's really no unless he said unless you just want to spend your money on an M mount lens. He said there's really no reason not to get a screw mount. Yeah, I think what happens too is the the M mount adapters. The quality of them varies greatly. And so that focus to flange distance, I mean, it could be like a half a millimeter, could throw off focusing to infinity. Um, and you think it's like, it's half a millimeter. It's not that big of a deal. It's a big deal. Right. I know I've seen a few of the lack of M, M mount to screw mount. It was only, they, were, they weren't expensive, like 60 bucks or something mm-hmm. for a true lets or leaks or whatever you want to call it yeah the, always... the, um, the knockoff ones have the wrong thread too i mean it's the same so it's the appropriate diameter it's the number of threads in the, the depth of the adapter um i was just listening to the classic lenses and perry was talking about it 
Um, I think they're, you have to count the threads. So if you have four, you have one that's going to work. If you have five, it's going to be off because it'll actually, it'll butt up inside. Uh, it could touch the shutter if you're not careful. Yeah, that'd be horrible. Ready? Yeah, I, I, I'm i going to have to get that that info. I, I mean, I feel like everyone talks about the um, those guys all the time. I've never actually bothered to get their info, but I, I'd like to call them because I, I think I'm going to hunt around for an M2 or an M3 body and just adapt yeah. my Leica 3F go. lens for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I really like that lens, but I, I'm never going to shoot that 3F on a consistent basis. I just don't like using the viewfinder mm -hmm. so but the lens is gorgeous so if, if i could get a body to adapt it to um and for some reason i don't like shooting it on my bessa you know you have those weird things uh-huh we like what, what lens is it mike it's a it's a i think it's a sumatar uh sumatar 50 the 52 f2 uh yep 50 f2 the collapsible or non? It is collapsible. Yep. Yeah, I think I've got one of those in the mail. To be to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, it's in the. It's coming. I I, I love it. I mean, surrounded by like a freaks. Yeah. <laughs> I hear Ed starting to yawn. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think uh, Jason, you had posted on the Facebook group lenses with character early today. Yeah. And, and I hate to, you know. I, I'd like to try to keep my romance in check and be objective, but I do feel like the handful <laughs> of shots I've got from that lens, it, it does have a character. Like the Sumatar? Some, uh, yeah, that Sumatar. There's something about it. When I look at the, like, when I'm looking at the shots from it, I'm like, oh, this is, these are, these are really cool. They're really nice. There's something, I feel like that maybe some of my other 50s have some edge distortions that are very subtle, and then this one doesn't. So I, I feel like the edges of my frames are a little straighter and a little cleaner. And I, I, I can't, I don't really know why I feel that way, but I always have that feeling when I'm flipping through the shots and I can almost tell even without looking at the, the info on my shots, like, Oh, these are the Sumatar shots. I so think it's I would, the old, yeah. Even, even if it's the cannons, like the old, um, any of the screw mount lenses, especially like pre 1950, um, like uh, lenses especially they were using whale oil as the internal lubricant and with age it just vaporizes and it coats to the inside of the lenses so when they tell you know you hear um real Leica junkies talk about the Leica swirl mm. it's not just um a fast lens shot wide open it's the it's the deposition of that oil that adds that kind of dreaminess, like the kind of um, the swirl, mm -hmm. like a swirl is is often the it's the oil, not necessarily the character of the lens itself. Is it similar to the Helos swirl M forty two? I think that's more the optics. <laughs> okay, it was yeah. it's just totally different. <laughs> the Helios forty four, yeah. So, so what you're really saying is Leica is not a vegan-friendly company. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, well, that's, that's all I got out of that. Now, now I feel guilty looking at my lens. There's like a dead whale in there. 
<laughs> sorry. I mean, if you sorry, really want to go down that line, that nothing about film photography is vegan because of gelatin. True. Yeah. I, I, I know I kind of made that offhand joke, but it, but it was also kind of a little bit serious when I was shooting the vegan rally a couple of weeks ago. I was like, I am, I feel bad because I know these folks are pro this thing and I'm doing something that's really anti exactly what they're doing to <clears throat> capture them. You know what I mean? That made me feel a little, a little moderately guilty. Yeah. <clears throat> but then they were making their dogs walk on LA streets in like, you know, 90 degree temperature. Right. So I, I really didn't feel so bad because I thought, you know, they were a little confused. Burning their paws up. Yeah, I was, all, I was almost upset. Like, you're over here saying that meat is murder and that that farming is animal slavery and then you're walking your dogs on hot asphalt at, at 1 to 3 p.m. in downtown Los Angeles. Yeah, which is, you know... <laughs> Not the most temperature controlled time of day. You you could see every dog was pulling on his leash to, to get to every shade spot that it saw. You know what I mean? It was just like, oh, I want to be over there. And these guys are just like walking with their signs and like ignoring their dogs. And I was like, this is so, this is irony right here at its finest. You're a dick. <laughs> just a little bit. Well, not you specifically. Yeah. <laughs> and if the shoe fits. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. All right. So are we ready to officially begin the uh, officially get going with this podcast? Yes. I love these these <clears throat> these rambling intros though. They're just totally yeah. fun. Heck yeah. Although I'm, like, I'm just, I'm still waiting for Ed to start rolling some film. I feel like something's missing here. No, 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 no. I, I am scan, I am scanning the film right now, boys, and I'm getting my, my. Uh, oh, I heard the scanner. My, uh, my, uh, my labeling ready for my Ilford that I'm about to bulk rope. So I'll, I will go on mute from time to time. Because no, I don't want people to get all pissed off about. <laughs> Hey, Michael, you, you said you did uh, shoot Andre's M2 the other day? No, no, I didn't, um, didn't shoot it. He just had it with him. and um, he, he wouldn't let you touch it or what? No, we, <laughs> we were. He, he didn't come on the walk with us afterwards. So we kind of really just saw it in the restaurant, and then he, he had to bolt back to work. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So I still plan on sending that. And then uh, I think Ed made or somebody made the comment about lack of freaks earlier, but I think me and Michael are kind of on the same thing here. I'm like, you know, is a like a, you know, the price of it. Does it make it great because of the price and you paid that much so you have to love it? Or is it actually a good machine? So anyway, I bought one recently and it's the M2 with the uh, M6 viewfinder upgrade done by Leica. So I'm going to shoot it. I'm going to shoot it for, I guess, this the rest of this week. And then I'm going to package it up and send it out to Michael and they're going to shoot it for a month or so. Whoever wants to shoot it, shoot it. And okay. I've already got my impressions of it, but like I told him, I'm not going to tell you what my impressions are of it now. And then you can tell me what you think of it when you get it. But I think I told him the first day I got it, I looked at it. I'm like, yeah, not impressed at all. Not impressed with this thing at all. It's just another flat type box, you know, but mm. and heavy. Oh yeah. Oh, 
you think it's heavyweight till you get the lens on it. Then it turns. It's about like an F three heavy. Oh. Yeah. But there's something about that. There is a certain like reassuring weight to those. I don't know. I've got the F three, and I just I don't know. The heaviness turns me off. To tell you the truth. I don't mind a. I don't personally mind a camera that has like a, a heft to it, if it's compact. Like I've been, I've been moving away from DSLRs and away from my SLRs. Not really. I, mean, I don't think they're too heavy personally, but it's just the bulk factor that I just I can no longer tolerate bulk. Right. I'm like I want a small and. And if like my Bessa is on the other side, it's almost too light. Like it feels like it needs a weighted handle added to it. Just so when you're, when you're shooting it, I don't, I don't know why I feel like it's missing a little something that I like in the fed and my Zorky, they both have that little extra heft that, mm -hmm. that the Bessa doesn't have that I really enjoy and they're fun to shoot, but neither one of the viewfinders is particularly amazing on those cameras, right? Like they're, the Zorky is actually pretty good, and you know the Fed, Dustin. It was your camera. Um, it's 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 actually really nice, and it's a reasonable shooter. But I wouldn't want to shoot it in low light at all because I right. I really wouldn't be able to see. Yeah, they're a little. I, I I think with those, especially like the Zorkies, you. I think this is true of the older Canon rangefinders too. Is that when they integrated the viewfinder rangefinder they got a little with the exception of the p right like the the, the late model canon rangefinders are super bright but the kind of golden age of rangefinders when they integrated them together and they were competing with leica specifically um they got a little dim so part of the reason why i like using um external viewfinders so much mm -hmm. oh just you know as we go into our 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 now favorite uh, rangefinder romance section of the podcast, um, <laughs> give me. I mean, uh, I mean we have four more started podcasts. the introduction of the guy, and we're already talking about Leica. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not bitter. Yeah, actually, so so again, Ed, we're we're not talking German, really. We're we're still on Russian cameras. Oh, there you go. That's true. That's true. Let's keep it there. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So uh, I'll say we move on from Rangefinder Romance, although I do think we got to, Jason, you and I got to find a way to angle this in every week because it's too <laughs> awesome. A regular segment. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It'll be an unofficial floating segment. And um, we can introduce uh, the listeners and ourselves to Dustin. And so, yeah. so Dustin, um, you know, in, in this section of the podcast, we kind of just were hoping you could tell us as much about yourself as you'd like to, um, you know, where you're from, what you're doing, and how you think all that impacts uh, your photography, and, and especially in your explorations with uh, slow speed films like the 2238. And I, I forget if you, you're shooting some of the 2254 too, right? Uh, I think I have some of that. I've not dove into it quite yet, but I believe I probably got some of that and I've got more from you on the way. So let's see. So I grew up in Oklahoma, of course, 
well, not of course, but anyway, I grew up in Oklahoma for most of my life till I was about 21 or so, uh, joined the military, uh, stayed on active duty for about six years or so, working in aviation, got out of that, and then worked on the civilian side aviation for a few years, working on the just general aviation aircraft during that time i can remember my very first film camera was a it was a little 110 one of the little rectangle film cameras my parents i begged them for it and they got it for me and then of course i blew through that roll of film in about two minutes and then we got mm-hmm. it developed and there wasn't anything on there worth a thing and they're like that's too expensive we ain't messing with that anymore so <laughs> that's, how, that's how that went and then i can remember that they had a slr but i think it was a sears or something so it was part of the ks2 but I don't even know where that went. I wasn't allowed to touch that either. And then, of course, during my first few years in the military, I bought, you know, your little point and shoot because that's all you were shooting film. And I shot uh, some of that. I shot, I remember buying an APS camera in Bosnia and shot a bunch of APS film in Bosnia. Uh, Just, you know, just typical, just point and shoot type stuff. Nothing fancy, just memories, I guess you would call it. Um. Got out of all that. I moved to, I guess I moved down here to the Mississippi in the deep south, the hot south, about 14 years ago. And that was a, if you've never been here, that's for anyone coming from anywhere else in the world, that'd be a little bit of a culture shock for you. It's it's about like stepping back in time, probably 30, 40 years with some of the thought processes. And then just, uh, I guess, just all the different type of things that happen then uh, i guess it would be about 2006 or seven i decided i was going to buy get into photography and i was bought a i think it was a nikon it was a d5000 i think so a dsr came with you know the kit lenses and i bought a 3518 all that so i shot that quite a bit and i still have it I think it was a 12 megapixel camera. I shoot it on six megapixels or something. And then I got to looking at a film and I think, you know, the question gets asked a lot of people, why, why film? Why do you shoot film? And <laughs> Michael gets tw- twisted on, you know, Hey, it, it slows me down. Yeah. I, I agree with him. That's not, that's not a good reason. Cause it definitely don't slow me down. I shot digital. I didn't know you were supposed to shoot digital at a super fast speed or, you know, a thousand, frames in an hour or whatever so i shot it just like i did my disposable film cameras you know one shot hey shit i got it or i didn't let me try it again you know then eventually you get good enough with it and you're just taking one shot anyway you know you got it you're not even looking at your you know the preview or whatnot and then uh Mm. so then i'm i'm thinking uh well so then i get to think i will and then people say well you know i like to mess with i like to put the film in there it's a process i like to do this i like to turn that and and then we all know that's bullshit because Yashika came out with their digital film camera where you had your little film canister you could put in there and that was a flop. So they believed your lies and then made a product and nobody bought it. But So I come to it, I was thinking hard about it. So wide film. So I think film and uh, human characteristics is pretty much with film, you have a chance of, you know, either success or failure. And so you're kind of, you know, you're going off that. Well, shit, I could, I could really screw this up, but it could, you know, I could develop this film and it would be a winner. So it could possibly be there's a, 
you know, like your dopamine type thing. So when you finally look at your role and you're like, oh man, I nailed it. So then there's that excitement and that little bit of dopamine release and, you know, it keeps you to wanting to try it. So maybe that's, that's the reason, but I think the reason I do it is because there is a, there's a chance I'm really going to screw it up or there's a chance I'm going to nail it. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, if they made a digital camera that you shot and you couldn't, and it locked your pictures down for a week or more, or however you could set it, you know, hey, don't show me this for three or four days. And then it randomly processed, you know, half the roll of shit and then uh, uh, half good. Would people buy that? <laughs> Maybe I would. I don't know. <laughs> Dustin, you're, you're warming my heart right now. This is no lie. I've had this dream that I I have a buddy who's who who does a little bit of coding. Well, fair fair bit of coding. And he's always asking me for app ideas. Uh-huh. Um, because he's like, he just wants projects to work on. So he's like, Hey, you know, like, do you have an idea of something I could build for you? That would be cool. And I, I really want him to build a little program that you stick on a memory card. So when you put it into your camera, it takes over your digital camera controls and it blacks out your LCD screen. And it only gives you like one ISO. And then when you shoot it, it runs like a randomization algorithm so that it does fuck up like a certain percentages of your images. It, it scratches the negatives or just right. I'm like, that would be so hilarious because I would I would actually shoot that thing all the time if I had. I think it. I would. Yeah, I think people would just to say, hey, is it going to what's going to come out of it? You know, it's either open it up and you're completely pissed off or, hey, that was awesome, you know. Yeah, and you you, you kind of had mentioned that um, you, you know that Yashica Kickstarter, and for, I think for the faux film camera with the little cartridges, which essentially yeah. did that. I mm-hmm. I wanted to buy that camera so bad. I loved the concept of that idea so much, and the and the thing that kept me is you know as they were kind of going through, then when they revealed the size of the sensor that they were going to use, I was like, well, that's, you know, it's too bad that you didn't make a more honest attempt at building a reasonable camera because otherwise you're building something the size of an iPhone sensor. And that's just not going to be worth the money, even though I, I loved the concept. If, if they would have put it in even like a micro four thirds or like a, a more standard digital camera sensor, I would have, I would have jumped in there with both feet and, and been loving it. And then it is sad that it turned out to be a disaster. Although I'm, I'm still my personally keeping my eye out on eBay and Facebook marketplace. And one of, eventually I'm going to come across that whole little starter kit for like 50 bucks and I'm going to buy it <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to run around and shoot it. And then, it, you know, cause I, I really love the concept cause I think it, it, it gets for me sort of like you at, probably some of the intangible reasons that I love film photography and a little bit of that is some of that unpredictable sort of Christmas day experience when I developed the film. Oh yeah. Especially like when I switched over to uh, the steel reels, not too long ago, I loaded one, thought everything was good. And then you develop it and you've got the pink and yellow and you just totally screwed it up. And only like four images made it through the whole thing. And you're like, son of a. Yeah. Oh, Cause every, yep. it, it was touching. Yeah, it was all touching in there. Yep. Wait, wait. You don't got, tell that. You got that from the steel. Wait, wait. You got that from the steel reels. Yeah, because I when I loaded them, I just mm-hmm. thought you know I just rolled them under. I've been used to the Patterson ones. Even the 
I have a 19, yeah. probably 70s Yankee master tank that operates off the same Patterson type, you know, the little ball bearing. Roll it yeah. on, but when I did the steel reel, it was just, you know, the cheap steel, not a Yankee reel or anything like that. And I rolled it mm -hmm. on there. I just did it like I thought it should go. And then parts of it were touching in different locations. Of course, now I understand how to do that. I mean, there was a little video. You don't hear a lot about it. But as you roll it on the steel reel, you kind of hold the film and then you push the film toward the reel. And as long as yep. you've got it's loose, then you're good to go, which my second attempt at it was perfect. No problems. No. Okay. So, and I like using the, I like using those reels now because of course the tanks are smaller. You use less chemicals and it's a, I just hate the bulkiness of the Patterson reels and doing that stupid ratchet thing. Wow. You'll see the lab box. Have you had any problems with them? Um, getting sticky or binding uh, Patterson reels. Oh, I haven't. No, but I've never, I didn't use, I used the, I keep two separate ones. So one I use for black and white and then one I use for C41. And then I usually rinse them when I'm done, like in really hot water, probably like 115, 120 degree water. Just let it run on them for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Oops, sorry, well, I, I find it they, they, not that they get sticky. I haven't necessarily had that problem, but it, I have seen where it, it seems to be more helpful for for my process is if you pull the reel ever so slightly apart, mm -hmm. it tends to it tends to ratchet on a lot easier, especially if you wind up using like FPP's derived pan, which is like reeling cellophane. It's so thin. Mm. I like that film though. I do like that film a lot. You just that have to go very up. slowly. Yeah. yeah. If if you rush, it will punish you quickly. Mm -hmm. I you oh. know they they gave us a, a free roll of the Derev pan at the um, film Paideia in San Clemente uh, this year. I haven't developed my or I haven't even shot mine yet. But Jason, from your description of it, it sounds similar to the, I don't know if you guys ever shot the Mr. Brown low ISO film that FPP was carrying for a long time. I, I think they're out of it these days, but uh, it was also the same thing. It was so thin. I think at one point I put it in my bag and I had to attempt to load it on, I think, four or five different occasions because I, I would get so frustrated and it wasn't loading and it was just everywhere in there that I would just sort of neatly coil it up put it inside a tank put the lid on it i put it back in my closet and then like a week later i i tried again and it it took several attempts like at least four or five to get that on the reel successfully and then the film was beautiful when i when i finally got around to developing it and mm -hmm. i was sad because then they were sold out of it by that point in time but i i really loved it hmm. So another thing I started doing with the uh, when I roll film onto a reel is I just leave it in the canister. You know, I do a retrieval on it, and I just leave it in the canister, roll it on that way, and then mm -hmm. clip it at the end. But that's yep. one way I do it. Yeah, but so that's, that's the non-destructive way that we prefer to use. Yeah, the, I yeah, think when I first started, I I'd just pull it all out, or I would bust yeah. the dang canister open, you know, and then just yeah, jerk when it the out, uh, and be everywhere when the it. retriever doesn't work. You just have to cut it up and then smash it. <laughs> <laughs> have you tried the um, using a strip of negs, Ed? Yes. Yes, I've tried that and I wasn't successful either. 
You yeah, know what it that, was? It is that the, seems to be like the go-to for me. If the retriever is yeah. not working, I tend to use a strip and eggs. Well, I the other thing too is I tend to um, fold the tip of the uh, lead when I put it into my cameras, so mm. that when I'm rewinding it, I don't want it to. Um, I don't want it to. Uh, which one call it? It's the word multiple. I, I don't want it to go all the way back into the cast, so I don't have to try to retrieve it right mm -hmm. uh, but i think this one was in my um little af 600 so when i i must have folded it and then once it went back in it was kind of hard to come out so oh gotcha that's, that's the story i'm sticking with so we'll see i'll try it's like to a fish yeah it's like a barb i i recently shot a roll of the 2468 uh to test it for the upcoming project and I feel like I've been getting really good with my film retriever, like 95 or more percent success rate. And I probably sat here for an hour trying to retrieve one of the 2468 rolls. And it was just like, you know how you're like, I'm going to get this. I'm not going to waste this canister, even though I'm wasting all this time like a dumbass. And <laughs> eventually i had to give up and i just i you know i put it in the dark bag i cracked it open with my can opener and what had happened is i and i forgot and this is sort of similar to matt's experience last week um i had put a little piece of tape on the end even in my eos 10s just so it would start on the reel and that sucked back in and the little piece of tape was still on there so it just taped it to itself inside the canister <laughs> so oh, there was yeah. no way in hell I was ever going to get it. But I kept trying and trying and trying. And then when I opened it up in the darkroom, I was like, oh, yeah. The note to self, if you tape it in the future, um, set your leader so it doesn't suck all the way back in uh, on those cameras that you can do that with. Yeah, mm. that, that's one of them that'll do it, I believe. It, it will. I think Matt has actually posted um, some instructions on how to do that. Uh, he, he has the QD, which is... The, the exact same model as the EOS 10S, just for a different market. Yeah, that was the Japanese version, I believe. Yep. So, yeah. So, and so digital cameras. I I still got the Nikon. I bought a. I listed after the the Fuji X100 for a oh, nice. long time, and I bought a T, and then I uh -huh. set new in the box for two years. I just. I just didn't want to shoot it. I'd look at it and be like, I already know what I'm going to get out of it. So it just stayed new in the box, and then I ended up selling it on eBay for like 900 bucks with a zero shutter. Oh, nice. Count wow. like two years later. <laughs> no actuation? Wow. No, none. Didn't even, I turned out to charge the battery just to get that, and I took a screenshot of it, you know, and stuck it up there. But recently I did buy, uh, I got a Sony A6000. I've got that too. And then uh, I bought a bunch of adapters just to adapt, like the I got a Leica thread mount adapter mm -hmm. and then some Minolta crap or whatever. So I think it was it was cheap, you know, it wasn't a twelve hundred dollar camera, but it was like three hundred bucks or something. But, so I've got those are the only two digital I have. And then to answer the question, uh, why low ISO? I think I like the low ISO. I even shot in my digital cameras. I'd set it to a hundred and leave it, you know just because I don't want to try to mess with, and especially on when you're shooting old cameras, like most of us like to do, you can get them cheaply. Uh, shutter speeds are usually like to 500. So, I mean, when you're shooting 50 or 25 ISO film on a bright, super bright day, you're shooting 100 and 
25th of a second wide open. You can stop motion at 125th of a second on 25 ISO film. Um, so it just makes things simpler, especially if you're trying to shoot like a 400 speed film in the same situation, you would need, you know, a two, two thousandth of a second or better just to do the, you know, get the same reaction out of it. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, and then I think, so my first time ever shooting black and white was, uh, was some, uh, Tri-X and I think I was shooting it and the uh, 2238 at the same time. So those are my first two black and white films. And I thoroughly enjoyed the 2238 shooting it. The Tri-X, like I said, it was 400 speed films. So I was shooting it with the F3 or whatnot. And then some, on some days it was having problems that, you know, because it only goes to 2,000th of a second. So even shooting at 5.6, I'm still hitting 2,000th of a second in Mississippi full sun. And then uh, I like the way that the uh, 2238 scans better. Uh, when I scan the tracks, you know, you do your preview. And then I'd have to make some small adjustments in levels or the histogram or whatnot. And with the 2238, I hit the preview. It went up. I was like, yep, that's it. It's perfect. So just hit scan. So I didn't really have to make any adjustments on that stuff at all. That's a that's an interesting experience for, for you, I think, because – you know, it's like you literally started with a reasonably grainy, fast, legendary film and then sort of an unknown, grainless, super slow film. It's like you you bracketed pretty much the extremes <laughs> of modern, you know, black and white film photography in a way as your as your first foray into it. That that's that's really cool. Yeah, but I do. I really do like the uh, 2238 over the tracks just. And the simple fact is speed. You know, I can shoot a lot of different situations uh, at a slow shutter speed. I guess some would consider it slow, but you know what I mean? It's if you got an old I, camera, I like I've got some old range finders, some crazy with sonar lenses, and they go to, I mean, max speed's 500 a second, because that was back in that day, they were still all your speeds were slow. So, you know, 500 mm -hmm. a second was killing it. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, it, 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 25 ISO film would have been medium range like mm -hmm. you know if you're talking fast film was like 100 maybe 200 then that's the the reason i bought the uh i bought the uh bed too and i think 500 i think that's it's max so then i said oh i really like the you know shooting that type of camera i like turning the knobs i like doing all that cool stuff but uh so i went with the the 3c because it had a thousand of a second shutter speed and i've shot uh, some of that at a thousand and it was nailing the thousand, but with that 25 ISO or shooting it at 12 or wherever, I mean, you don't really need anything above 500 definitely. So it kind of brings all those old cameras that most people think are out of, you know, out of play. Oh, that only goes to 500 of a second. Well, now they're back in there and you've got pretty much three stops there that have reserved that you can use in most occasions. Yeah, it it's it. I feel like it opens up the um, the older cameras to you because I I for a long time myself I was shooting HP five maybe for the last handful of years it was my black and white mm -hmm. go to film that I shoot all the time and if you're walking around 
you know, most of midday, for instance, into early evening, you, you pretty much have to shoot it at F8 or F11 at a thousandth of a second. Yep. And I kind of actually found that not after a while to not be really fun, right? Because I wanted shallower depth of field. And I really couldn't open it up unless I slapped an ND filter on there. And I just, I didn't really want to do that either. And and so it is fun to have these slower ISO films like 25 or 12, because it's actually giving me a, a, a better sense of shooting conditions overall, because now I'm realizing, oh, I can shoot at F4 around 500th of a second in the middle of the day. And that's like, if I was still shooting 400 ISO films, that, that range of photography would just be unavailable to me without like a three-stop ND filter. Oh yeah, take some Portia 400 and throw it in the fade, even on a cloudy day, and you're 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 in for problems. A lot of things you're not mm -hmm. gonna be able to shoot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I, my sense of some of these old cameras too is that it's the extremes of the shutter speeds, the super slow or the super fast speeds that tend to be the most wonky. And mm -hmm. so I like to be in the middle range anyway, because, you know, I, I felt like a lot of my cameras, the one to 500 or one to 1000 doesn't seem to work consistently. Or I, f I feel like the shutter does funky things where if I get it down to one twenty fifth of a second, it seems to fire consistently. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm in concurrence with it. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. You know, I, I think we're, you know what what I've found working with these slow films is that independent of processing technique and using the equipment, that there is um, there is a, a, a like body positioning and bracing with your arms, like it it calls forward a, a different kind of technique than perhaps other films because it's so slow. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, you'd be, you know, leaning into a corner or, you know, pulling mm. your elbows in tight against your ribs and, and locking in against your hip to, to give yourself something stable to um, to shoot against um, to prevent it, camera shake when you're going at a thirtieth of a second. Yeah, your breathing control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty excited to shoot. Now, 25 is the slowest I've shot while I'm shooting at Summit 12, but to get into that point nine and all the, that color stuff is going to, that's going to be pretty amazing. I just got to get some uh, chemicals ordered for the C41. Nice. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask you, um, I, I kind of was going back through now the, your, uh, some early submittals for the Kodak 2238 project. So you've been shooting the, the 2238 at ISO 25, it looks like for the most part, but, but now you're starting to, to drop it. Is, is there a reason is it, do you want to switch developers or do you want to get more detail think, in the shadows or. I think I'm going to stick with the, the, the D 96. Mm -hmm. um, but I, the reason I'm going with 12 is, and of course it runs into another problem. You know, when you're looking at things on a monitor and then people, have, you've seen the question people are asking, should I color calibrate my monitor? Well, possibly, I don't know, you know, that because whenever, if I'm looking at a photo and you guys are looking at it, we're probably all seeing four different versions of that same photo, depending on what we're looking at it on. I know mm -hmm. that my, com my computer right. monitor is, uh, shows me different color than when I hook to my 32 inch monitor versus my iPhone 
and my iPad, they all, my iPhone and iPad kind of look the same. But to answer that question, when I'm looking at it on what I think is a reliable, you know, the iPad, you know, my, my darks are too dark. So I want to get a little more light in there to see, see if I can take some of that super contrast out of it and get more, I guess not make my black so black. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't have you, have you printed any of, of your 2238 stuff or in, in any capacity? I have not yet. I'm going to tomorrow evening is what I'm going to do today or possibly tonight. Not nice. And is you, are, are you going with like an inkjet or a traditional darkroom print? I'm going to go with the, I can, the inkjet. I did the, uh, I bought into the HP, you know, <laughs> hysteria that's going on. <laughs> so I got into that. But, um, and, <laughs> and then I also, I send some of my stuff down to, uh, like the Walgreens. Mm -hmm. and they usually have a coupon or something like the other day they had a free eight by 10 code. You just throw it in there and have them print out a eight by 10 and run down there and get it and see what, you know, see what happened there. Yeah. So I'm probably going to, I'll probably do a little bit of both of that and then kind of compare them and see what, see what happened there. Yeah. I've, I've had prints done at Walgreens and they um, just, uh, sometimes their calibrations aren't right. I mean, uh, black and white ended up turning purple after a while. Yeah, oh, that's kind of weird. Yeah. I had, I had a, a print done not too long ago from them and then okay. at the very top of the image, I'm not sure how it comes out of the machine. It could, could be the bottom, but it had the, the rainbow cast in it, you know. Yeah. And I tried to ask the girl last time I was down there, hey, what machine do you guys use to print that? And she's looking at me like I was crazy. She's like, it's <laughs> a, that thing over there, it comes out of that little hole. I'm like, yeah, great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that technical uh, description. Yeah. I was like, Can I come behind the counter and look at it? Like, uh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, I think you know my the Walgreens that I used to go to. They, actually, the the tech who ran the photo department was relatively savvy, and he would always warn me that hey, these if you print black and white here, they're probably going to come out with a slightly greenish tint. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, he 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 suggested that the first time I went there, and he was totally right. Like they all have a slightly they looked good, but there was a slightly greenish tint and. Um, I haven't done it yet, but I, I know that the dark room in San Clemente, um, I haven't done this with Kodak 2238, but if you send them your files, they have a, a like a laser scribe system that prints on traditional black and white paper. So you can get any of your digital or film scans printed on traditional black and white paper. And I've done it with a couple of my digital files and then you know the it comes back and you have true deep blacks and bright whites and they look really nice um i may actually myself run some stuff through my hp and my canon and send the same file to them and just do like that side by side comparison of all three to see if i really feel like there's a significant difference in them yeah yeah i was looking at when i was looking at printers i was looking at you know that the HP, they got two, you got two inch, you got a black and you got a multicolor. So the multicolor has to try to make gray at some point, which it's probably not real good at. And then some of your other printers, like your Canon, the Pro series and all that, they've got, you know, anywhere from eight to 16 different inks and they've got different grays and photo blacks. And so they probably, I would think they would, 
off principle, they should do a better job, but who knows? I guess that that print service from the dark room, and and I uh, I'm glad to hear somebody's had results from it because I I I never actually went through with it, but I know that's a service that they offer. Yeah, I've been fortunate because we we're living out here and two times now. Um, the the film photography project has done. Um, the first time they just did a walking workshop at the darkroom lab in San Clemente, and then this year they did. They were part of the Paideia. So I've gone down for both of those occasions and you get to tour the darkroom facilities and you get to go through their film processing centers and all that. And um, sort of near the end of the tour, they always take you into the print area where they have, you know, maybe 15 or 20 sheets of paper that they've printed with that dark and or that black and white uh, method. And so I've got to actually hold reasonably large prints on multiple types of papers and see them in person to see what comes out of that. And certainly that's why I sent my stuff there is after I got to see it, you're like, it, it looks really nice. Um, and I, I think my favorite is they have sort of a matte printing that's, that's not high gloss that looks really, that's, that's sort of my favorite of their stuff. But I could see if you knew how to light photos where some of that deep gloss that they have, you could probably get a lot of depth and dimensionality if you framed it in such a way and lit it. But I know I'm never going to do that. So I go with the matte prints from them because um, they look good sort of in standard room light with nothing special happening. Yeah. I don't like gloss. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Well, I mean, the, the, the Polidoro has a has a soft, um, that's the inkjet paper that I use most frequently, mm-hmm. and it, it has a really soft gloss to it. Um, and Michael, you have a couple of those prints that were done I do. on that paper. I'm looking at your, the for sale one right now. Uh, that's got, awesome. I, I love that print, dude, for, for real. It's like, that, that, it's like so perfect. If that guy wasn't on his cell phone in that shot, it would be t- it would be more timeless. You know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I feel I feel that. And not even that I dislike that. It's just it's almost so perfect because it's right at the edge of being like this timeless photograph. Um, you know, I mean, maybe not timeless, but I think you know what I mean. Um, for for everyone who's not familiar with that shot, you should go check out. Uh, jason's etsy store and, and look at it. it's just it's a wonderful composition thanks brother i appreciate that so just think in about 50 years when somebody looks at that image they're gonna be like what the hell is that guy holding <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you're right that's, that's probably true yeah uh what are you doing for scanning your your 2238 what's your scanning process oh i'm i'm using the uh the v 550 i believe it is the epson okay yep and i and i know there's a big (laughs) you know people talking about shooting that with dlsr and they get into the argument of hey it's got the same sensor as the camera (laughs) yeah it it does but Mm -hmm. it operates a little bit differently because it does um, multiple scans, you know, so it's recording that information multiple times right. where your DLSR, you're telling it the 
hey, record this at 500 of a second, which it does a fantastic and amazing job. Are the scans going to be any better from one versus the other? Probably not. Not, not that anybody could ever tell, but I enjoy yeah. scanning mine at, you know, 12 frames at a time. I just stick it in there. I, I hit it on the professional mode, and then I just uh, uncheck everything except for, like, the, the D-sharpen mask. Mm-hmm. I put it on 1,200 DPI, which is probably about uh, 900 too much, and then uh, fill it to go, and then I'll preview it. And then, like, if I'm, like the tracks, like I said, I just had to adjust the histogram just a tad to get it to where I thought yeah. it looked good. And then <clears throat> hit, hit scan, and it takes it. It doesn't take it very long at all. Two or three minutes max to do 12 frames and then load up another 12 and I'm done. I couldn't imagine wow. shooting one frame at a time and then sliding it and sliding it. And I'd bought that uh, the digitizer and tried that. Of course, you can only do six frames at a time there. And that thing was a royal pain in my ass to get the uh, to actually get the film in there. And then you have to put the little bottom plate on, put the film in there, we'll fight it, get it in there. And then you put the top plate on. But when you try to do that, then the bottom plate falls off and you're like, yeah, dang it. So I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Give me the piece of shit thing that came with this thing. <laughs> yeah. I, hey, if you need one, let me know. <laughs> your, your hers are hot killings, man. You gotta, yeah, you got to wait till those go. Um, are back on back order and then just sell them for double the price. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm, I'm having my feelings hurt a little bit over here because I was super excited and I added one to my Metropolis <laughs> Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, be, and, and it's only because I, I feel like in the Epson, I, I have the Epson holders, I can't scan the sprocket holes. Right. in a reasonable right. way so i was i'm hoping that the digitalizer isn't too much futzing around to be able to scan the sprocket holes oh, you can, on some you, you can definitely do that mm-hmm. i noticed uh it's going to take some adjusting mm-hmm. i think because when i did it it created like a huge flare off the edge of the, mm. the sprocket hole and then uh, of course like i said you got you put this little metal plate so you got it set and flat with a little metal plate on the back. And then when you open up the holder to put your film in there, well, then, of course, it lifts up the bottom and then the little stick of metal plate slides and then random cuss words and get it all back together. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, then you get the film in there and then you close it and then you have to put the, the top piece in there that actually it's got the magnet. So then it pulls the bottom plate up and pops everything in there just right so that it's just barely sitting in there so you can get your, your sprocket hose. But... Yeah, I tried it. Uh, I fought that thing for a whole uh, 36 frames. And I was like, yep, on top of the shelf, <laughs> you go. They're like, done back in the shit. box. Yep, done with that shit. Give me 12 frames at like four times the speed. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I. it's interesting because I think we probably all have some similar experience where there's, there's times where I just want to scan all my stuff, but then every now and then you're like, I want to do something more creative with these negatives where I want the rebate information. I want the sprocket holes. Like, I don't know what drives that decision for each of us or even for myself. And, and I feel like, yeah, it's like probably a specialized tool that I'm only going to use once or twice a year to actually mm-hmm. scan the sprocket holes. I've tried I've tried taping them down into my 120 holder or my four by five holder and it does work, mm-hmm. but it's just not 
it's not that easy doing that either. So I, I was, I'm, I'm hoping that I'll, I'll find the digitalizer to be a little better for that function. Yeah. But, I, I can, I can see that just using it, you know, random, but for a full time gig, no, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I mean, if you got something, um, like one of those uh, sprocket rockets or something yes. where you're actually exposing to it, then yeah, it's definitely, definitely that hate, kind of stuff. If you hate scanning in general, then you're just yeah. doubling your time at that point. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's it's fun how this uh, you know you know how these groups have are really a sort of influencing workflows now. I, mm -hmm. I feel like I feel like we we've gone through these interesting transitions in these groups where we have these you know for a long time it was really just digital versus film conversations and that is really in a nice way for the most part dying off and I think it's certainly dying off because. The irony is that everyone is now moving to using the cameras that they hated because they were inferior to right. digitize their film. <laughs> right. So you, so you can't really walk around saying how much they suck and how their dynamic range is terrible <laughs> if you're using it for your final product. Correct. Um, but I, but I feel like, yeah, now we're moving more into this, this process influence, which I, I actually really like that. I like seeing those trends of where a bunch of people are jumping on a, a couple of a couple of processes the scanner crowd versus the mirrorless crowd and it's not even really a versus because like i think it's from the sounds of it like you guys i i prefer scanning i have set my dslr up with the macro lens and done a few of the shots and it's like it's a nice extra tool to have but for me it didn't just didn't seem to add anything to my actual images and I found it to be a little too cumbersome and, and my scanner was still just much easier. Yeah, I saw somebody the other day that was shooting it with a, they were using the DSLR and they were shooting it multiple times and then just like overlapping it in Photoshop or something to get greater. I'm like, why would you do that? Wait, it seems so they're, like so they're much time. Focus stacking? Yeah, they were focus stacking their, uh, yeah. their negs. I'm like, why in the world would you do that? Yeah, I've seen, yeah. Because at that point, you're doing what your flatbed is doing on its own, you know? Yeah, they, there's some people who are like when they're scanning the 120 or uh, digital scanning the 120. I mean, they're doing little sections at a time and then they stitch it all together to make the image. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I, well, I think Eric O'Hara in the uh, negative positives group was experimenting with that, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and that to me, that's a throwback of a lot of people with the V500s or um, the old uh, 4290 Epson scanner, which was super popular for a long time, too, is it, they didn't have a large format holder for those. Mm -hmm. So people would just scan like a, almost like a 120 size of their four by fives and they'd have to do it in four or five sections and then and then bring them together. And I, th I think that like Eric's experiments from what I saw from him, he was getting an, a pretty amazingly high detailed negative. Now it would be curious to see that side by side with a flatbed scan of the same negative. And I think it all goes down in the end to, I, mostly I'd love to see it in a reasonable size print to compare the yeah, difference. I think, right. I think, I think I've read something yeah. that said, you know, you can, you could do your scan at, you know, 4,800 DPI, but most printers today are still printer technologies behind. So the best they can print is at 1,200 DPI. 
So you're kind of yeah, wasting your time. Yep. Mm. That's it. That's interesting. Um, I, I may actually scale mine back to and do a couple of test prints. Like sort of Matt gave me that idea last week. I don't know why I never thought of it where he, he basically was scaling his stuff up to say like a two foot by two foot print, but then just printing an eight by 10 of a section to see what that would look like. Um, yeah, I think a lot of my stuff when I first started scanning, I was just scanning at 300. And I mean, it looks great on the screen. And if you stick it on Facebook or it's nobody knows and nobody, I mean, it looks, it still looks good at 300. I, I'll try that. I, I don't know. I think I was saying last week I, or maybe in the last couple of weeks, I felt like I was having a, a stroke because I oh, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I was scanning, right? <laughs> I scanned them at 300 and then I was like looking at my screen and I'm like, oh my God, like, I know that I didn't just shoot 24 frames of absolutely out of focus images. And so I seriously was like, I felt like, you know, that phantom pain in your head. You're like, Oh my God, I think I'm having a stroke because <laughs> everything on my screen started to look blurry. And so I don't know what happened. I just rescanned them at say, uh, I think I do 2,400 uh-huh. and you know, it was perfectly fine. This is, and all was, you did was you just changed it from three to 24 and hit scan again. And it was good. Yep. And, and, and like you said, though, when I in the software, when I hit the preview at 300, it looked, they looked fine. It was when they sent them out to um, I, I send them to a scan folder, and then import them into Lightroom. And once I imported them into Lightroom and blew them up on my monitor, uh, just at normal size, it's not a crazy large monitor. I was like, hmm. oh, my God. And, you know, I just kept hitting the next arrow key to go to the next image, and they were all blurry. And I seriously was like, I think I'm having a stroke. Something's wrong. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah, it was really, it was really funny that I rescan. I just literally had had the film in the trace still, so I just hit rescan at 2400, and they they came out perfect. Yeah, I do mine at 12. I think you know, as far as time goes, that's what I'm willing to give it. It's 1200. And I yeah, think that, I, I think that's fine too. I I think um I'm so I'm curious what you guys are doing. I'm I'm using I'm still just using Epson scan mm-hmm. and straight to a TIFF and yep. in into Lightroom. Do you guys use? Uh, I know I know Ed uses Silverfast. I think. Yep. Yep. Um, what about you, Dustin and Jason? What are you guys using? Yeah, I'm using the Epson, the software yeah. that came with it. Yeah, I use I view scan at twenty four hundred DPI, and then I'll I I don't I'm no longer using Lightroom. I use Raw Therapy, which has been mostly good, except when I try to print. I I the print module inside Lightroom. Mm-hmm. Wonderful templates. Yeah, yeah. At the at the moment, I'm not using anything as far as like a Lightroom or Photoshop or any of that. I'm not. I'm just using a, like a photo viewer, and that's it. I'm not. I'm not really doing any more adjustments after the scan. Oh, are you wow. doing any? What do you do for cleanup? Uh, if I any, can, if you oh for if like you dust, dust or whatever, I could. Yeah, I think I've still got um, I've got an Adobe. Oh, can't okay. remember like a Premiere Nine or some Elements oh. Premiere Nine, some really outdated crap that was on my laptop. And right, it's got the dust. Uh, you can remove dust mm-hmm. like that with the clone tool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. but I, I think I cured my dust problem uh, whenever I started rolling out of the film canister. That did a mm-hmm. lot for me. 
Uh, okay. Photo Flow did a lot for me. Wearing uh, like your latex or nitrile gloves. I do that whenever I'm scanning. And then a little thing of compressed air between each scan, I'll just hit the uh, scanner glass real quick and then hit the bottom of the negatives real quick and just slap it down there and hit go. And I've not seen any dust since then. Some good tips have, there. You have to watch the angle when you hit it, would hit the negs with the uh, compressed air because then you just blow them right out of the frame. <laughs> yeah, I, would, <laughs> I, would, I definitely wouldn't try that with the digitizer. I did, then I throw that thing against the wall. <laughs> Stomp at the day. <laughs> I am. I am still jealous of everyone. That reason. I have. Um, I have the pack stuff. It's probably like some weird perchlorate formula that I should never breathe. But um, I, I it's like I can do nothing in my life to get rid of dust. I. You know, I use PhotoFlow. I try to keep everything clean. I brush down my scanner and the trays before I scan. I use that PEC stuff with the the little chemical wipes or whatever. Clean the film. I put it in there and I hit scan. And then there's still a freaking a little piece of string and a bunch of dust in my blacks. Mm. How long are you letting your legs uh, dry before you scan? Um, I mean, it, at a minimum, say two or three hours, and then yeah, I can't wait that long. I'm about thirty minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm right there with you, Dustin. <laughs> maybe that well, hasn't, maybe that has an issue. Yeah, I'm one. I just, I feel like, you know, it's it's sort of the darker my blacks are, the more dust I see. But hmm. you know, and I, I can use the pec pads that uh, I think Leslie recommended them once on one of the. Uh, the FPP podcasts and they, they certainly help and they they've cleaned up some pretty dirty negatives where, you know, before I started doing a distilled rinse, before I did my um, photo flow, I would, my, the water here must be pretty hard. So I was getting a lot of water spots with the, the extra distilled rinse before photo flow has sort of taken care of that problem. But I just, yeah, dust is the bane of my existence with film photography. Huh. I would try to. Do you wear gloves at all when you're doing it? I do. I have, uh, unless I'm doing a photo of Ed, then I like to get a big old fingerprint right on there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, then you like to scan naked. <laughs> well, I thought scanning naked was just how we did things. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that's the best way to do things, right? That's right. Yeah, that's, I just hit the uh, between each scan. That's all I do. I take the compressed air and just a quick blast. Before mm -hmm. I start, if I've left my scanner for a while, pull it out, grab some uh, the microfiber, wipe the glass, don't get all crazy with nothing. And it could be that maybe when you're putting those wipes on there, that liquid is uh, drawing more dust. Yeah, there could be like a light residue there. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about buying one of those little anti-static brushes from yeah, Amazon or I was something. Say and just... static, static's a huge thing, too. Yeah. yeah. I don't use gloves when I'm handling my negatives. I just, uh, I just microfiber it to clean it off with a little bit of water, and then done. Put them on. And I bought a squeegee, but I don't know if I'll actually use it. I just photo flow it, hang it, and then walk away. Now, I used to mess with it. You know, either I'd finger squeegee, which most people hate that, or uh, even a paper towel. Mm -hmm. Just kind of fold it over a bunch of times. 
but now I don't even do that with photo flow. I just hang it and walk away, come back in about 30, 40 minutes, take it down, chop it up, throw it in the machine. Are you guys using um, uh, hardening fixers or just regular fixers in, using, in your process? I'm using Coda Fix, so it does have a hardener in it. Mm. I use TF4. I don't know TF4. I, what, what I'm curious about is I use the the finger squeegee or sometimes a microfiber cloth. Mm-hmm. And when I'm using B76 or HC110, it seems to be no problem, but I used that TD3 developer recently and I got a lot of distortions in the emulsion and scratches when I did the same method that I've done a hundred times. And I'm I'm wondering if if that developer, if it's maybe a solvent-based developer or something, if it actually changed the um, the emulsion and made it more susceptible to, yeah, to scratching like it, and moving. Sounds it, like it was kind of floating on top of the the uh, film itself. The yeah. Emulsion. Yeah, never seen that except for uh, Eric O'Hara. I sent him some of the Kodak forty-seven ninety-one. And when we developed that in the DF ninety six, it it like made the emulsion swirl and do all kinds of crazy stuff. Really? Um, yeah. So, you know, he he basically sent me a, a message and said, "Hey, I got this film from you, and I shot it, and look what happened." So, you know, his original question was, you know, did you accidentally expose this to light, like wh- while you were rolling it? Um, and I can understand why he asked that, like looking at it. But what I do for the stuff I sell on the Etsy store is for every for every batch I roll out, like say every every time I roll up a hundred feet and I send it out, I take either the the first roll or the last roll from that hundred foot section and I keep it right, and I document the batch number and the and sort of the rolling batch number. So when a problem like that occurs, uh, you know, I I said send me your information from your film. I took the same one from that 100-foot section. I shot it. I cut it in half, and I developed half in D76 and half in, in the monobath. And the monobath reproduced his error, and the D76 stuff looked perfect. Ooh. Interesting. Monobath. Yeah, so I think that was like the first time I've seen something about the developer or fixer, I don't know. It, it, it did. It caused the emulsion to like swirl almost like like an oil, like a little bacterial oil slick on water, you know, mm-hmm. like we've all seen that. It looked similar to that. And I could, that's why I, I initially understood why he thought maybe it was a light leak because it wasn't, it wasn't consistent and it kind of had, you know, but I was like, oh, but, but if we look more closely, these effects are going between the, the frames too, right? So it looked like something that had happened to the whole roll. And not just coming in from the camera because it wasn't constrained to just the shooting frame. Um, but yeah, so I, I still don't know what the the ultimate answer is, but I was able to reproduce it in DF96, but not D76 from the exact same role. So I found that fascinating. No, oh, that is weird. I, I seem to remember that actually, now that you mentioned it, Michael. Did you were you ever able to identify or did it just cut stop at this level of inquiry of going, okay, DF96 doesn't jive? Or is there something specific in the constitution of that monobath that is the problem? 
Yeah, and I don't have an answer for that yet. And what I may do is I may pick up a bottle of the FPP monobath, or I think somewhere in my chemistry set, I still have the old, uh, the R3 monobath that came out with the new 55. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. So I may, or I may just mix up a, like, um, back in the day, I got super excited and I found a recipe for an HC110 monobath. And I've made that sort of from scratch at home. It's It's pretty easy. It's like, Ilford Rapid Fixer, some ammonia, and some HC110. You just mix it together. And I may actually mix up a batch of that and just see how that works and if it if it reproduces that same result. Yeah, I'm not trying yeah, any of the monobass stuff at all. I was scared to try black and white because everybody's like, oh, you know, it's so black and white. Oh. Then they're like, color, you know, doing C41 is easier. Well, I've been doing that for a while anyway, but. In my opinion, black and white is easier than C41. Mm-hmm. I think I think the workflow is I just take my chemicals and throw them in the fridge about 15 minutes before I decide to start developing. And by the time I pull them out, they're usually about 68 degrees and roll on. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I can see the point why people think black and white. I mean, so, yes, black and white does have... Um, a lot more let's say personalization Mm -hmm. like you can really manipulate developer and film stock to get a particular look and even then adding in agitation schedules around that where c41 is two-step the only the outlier is temperature control Yeah, I, it's it's interesting. I it's I feel like this is another for me one of those weird romance things. Like it's three minutes for for the first color developer, and in my case, eight minutes for the second one because I use the Cinestill kit and I use the uh, the the TCS um, machine, right? Mm-hmm. The, the fancy sous vide. And that's that's the process. So I'm like, it's it's really really simple. It's only those two steps, and then I wash, and and the wash is five minutes, and then the stabilizer. So time wise, it's it's really short. It takes me like 25 minutes from start to end to do color. And black and white definitely somehow always takes me longer, even if I'm only using like an eight minute because I'm like, okay, I do the pre wash, I do my eight minute developing roughly. Then I do, you know, five minutes of fixing with a stop bath step in there and then five minute wash, five minutes of hypo clear and then another five minute wash. So somehow it feels like a lot more steps and it takes longer, even though it's really almost the same. But it but I and then in my mind, it's still simpler than color, which takes me less time. And there's only two chemicals. You're doing the hypo clear as well. I, I do the hypo clear because. Um, I feel guilty running that much water to, to do oh, a wash. You. Yeah. So it's, I think you could probably get away. I do a 10 minute final wash. I could probably get away with five. I would say. And I think my, if you, do you test your fixer? On a, uh, I, I don't test my fixer any longer. What I do is um, I just now keep track and I just don't do any more than 25 rolls. Because I, I mean, when I put it on there to see how long it takes mm-hmm. it to clear it, man, it's clearing sometimes in like two minutes. 
but yep. I still I still fix for like four just principle I guess but yep I'm similar I just use five minutes all the time unless it's 22 38 then I use eight and there's really no rhyme or reason for that except for I just do and and then I just keep track and at 25 I just recycle my fixer and mix up a new batch I think I might cut my watch time down to five minutes maybe even less because I mean by the time I, I pull the cap off I stick it under the faucet cut it on full blast mm-hmm that's got to be it's got to be clean and mm-hmm. too easy. Yeah, I yeah, mean, if you, you can actually, I mean, if you follow the Ilford method too, there's, um, they're, they run a very compressed yeah. watch. You know, I think it's, it's four, four complete fills and inversion cycles of the tank. Mm-hmm. And that they're considering that a wash. Now, I use the FPP's um, archival wash. So I do, it's a minute wash, minute archival, minute wash, and that I'm good with that. Oh, so yes, that's, that's that must be similar. Maybe I'll switch to their product. Um, I bought some from uh, from Freestyle. I think it was an Arista Hypoclear, and they theirs was a five five five, right? Five minute wash, five minutes in the Hypoclear, and then a five minute final wash. And, and they, they may just be super conservative on that. Yeah, let me check the bottle and just to be sure. But I know that that is, let's see. Film, 30 second wash, 30 second hyper wash, final wash, 30 seconds. Oh, yeah, that's clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, minute, minute for archival quality. So minute wow. for everything. 30 for just, you know, basic, basic processing. And um, for process for that, do you, how many times can you reuse that? Or do you mix up a fresh batch or do you just sort of mix it up with whatever dilution, dump it in your tank, do the wash, dump that out. And then, or do you keep reuse? Do you put it back in? I keep reusing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's a one to 42 dilution. Okay. And it comes in a quart size bottle. So I tend to mix it up about a liter at a time. And I I tend to just replenish whenever I replenish my fixer. So about 25 rolls. Okay. And I may be able to stretch it further, but I think at that point it's just false economy because it's such a cost-effective product to begin with. Right, right. Well, I, you guys have convinced me. I'm going to, once I'm done with this this hypoclear that I have, I'll switch to the FPP because I, I mean, you know, I live in a state where water is scarce and, and, uh, and I know that it's a, you know, literally a drop in the bucket to worry about it as a film shooter, but I still feel guilty. So I'd much rather switch over to a one minute wash. Um, that's amazing. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and just for, as a, a point of information, especially around fixing, um, I think I heard, I think Leslie from the FPP had said something about this, that you can fix for as little as 30 seconds to inspect, you know, so if you want to see, um, you know, what, what your, your negatives are going to look like after fixing, mm-hmm. um, 30 seconds will get you there. There's still residual silver, but it's at that point is so, um, 
slow sensitive that a short exposure is not going to affect your your final product at all. Mm-hmm. And you know, at that point, you can still return it to the tank and finish your say five minute fix. Mm. Five minutes has always been kind of my my standard, and I've I've experimented a little bit to see what three minutes will do. I mean, they've cleared, and I haven't I haven't seen any staining on my negatives um, as a result. And five minutes just seems to work. Yeah, yeah. That's that, that's um. I, I like having that process, and I I used to do the snip test, you know, where I clip off the leader of the film and, yeah. and use the fixer and i stopped doing that only because now i shoot so much film that i know that in in a month and a half i'm going to shoot 25 rolls of film so so now for my right when i used to shoot maybe two rolls a month my fixer would be mixed up for a year year and a half before i'd get to 25 so i think the snip tests were more important to me then and now I, I just feel really confident with like, I'm going to be getting new fixer in less than two months anyway. So as long as I just keep it under this number, I feel, I feel like I don't need to do the snip test anymore. Yeah. Uh, how do you, re- how are you recycling your fixer? Um, right now I'm doing the old uh, steel wool in a coffee can sort of in my my back patio area and i just pour like a little bit of fixing in there every few days and let it evaporate out and collect that silver well, now what i'm going to do with that silver once once you know some magic point in the future i don't know I'll, I'll try to take it to like a community recycling event yeah yeah mm-hmm. and i they wanted did. to do that with the liquid too instead of doing the silver reclamation process but the community i live in it's like it's really hard for me to figure out what, what the community recycling event days are for some reason. It's really weird. Like you think I should just go to their website and find it. And I've been having a little bit of a challenge, although I haven't honestly dug into it super hard. Um, so I figured this is a, a perfectly acceptable way to do it. I just don't want it going into the, to the sewer system. Yeah. My my understanding is that once it's um, all of that silver, I mean, what's essentially happening is it's a galvanic reaction, right? Yep. It's two yep. dissimilar metals um, that are in contact with one another, and so that's that's how that silver is clumping around that steel wool. It's pretty foul. It it, it looks like sludge. Yeah. Um, I I like I that silvery look at, though. They're they're actually doing. They're, it's a similar process, but they're they're running. Um, a steady electric current through, and then it's and then it's collecting um, on plates. Ah. And so the the liquid at that point is mostly inert, and so you can dispose of it however you choose. Um, it's the all of that heavy metal, all that silver that is clumped around the steel wool that then at some point has to be disposed of i just have a five gallon bucket in my dark room that i just mm-hmm. keep adding to um at, at, and at this stage at five five gallons will probably take me 10 years before it's at capacity right yeah and my stuff seems to evaporate at a reasonable rate right like i just have a i have a spare two liter bottle and i only ever mix up one liter of fixer at a time 
So I do my 25 in that one liter. And when I'm done, I dump it into my two liter master. And then that, that two liter, it just feeds into that coffee can. And uh, it, right it, at the rate I'm going, it seems to be evaporating and working out fine. I don't have a ton of it lying around. Yeah, take a, a and then I posted this to the um, NPP group a few weeks back. You know, toss a couple pennies and some spent fixer and see how quickly the inside of the bottle chromes. Oh yeah, I saw I saw your post on that. That looked cool. That was that was a funky thing. Yeah, so you can see why that's not something you just want to like dump down the drain. Oh no. Oh yeah, no. especially if you got it's... copper paps, huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I do actually. Yeah, and and it's actually one of the things that's a the bummer out. Well, anywhere, but here, I mean, we have freestyle, we have Sammy's camera, we have Cinestill. It's like you have commercial places that are probably they probably have a disposal route, mm-hmm. and it's too bad they co- couldn't for a fee open that up to con- to consumers of their products to say, hey, bring your spent fixer back to Freestyle and for five bucks, we'll dispose of it uh, yeah. for you. Be- right, because it's like, I know they don't develop film in the store, but, they, but they're using somebody who develops film who's complying with the law. That stuff's not going down the drain. It'd be nice if we mm-hmm. could take it there for a point of disposal and know that it's getting recycled and you know, if the fee's reasonable, I'd personally be happy to pay the fee um, to take my yeah. bottle of fixer over there and just say, "Here, five bucks, great, thanks." And labs that are running commercial silver reclamation tanks, um, that silver is then sold to jewelers and dentists or like dental amalgam, um, and so like there's a market that exists for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like it's we're all small users. We're not probably generating that much silver, but collectively, if we were returning it to the source, I would think that it would be a reasonable amount. Yeah, I hear you on that. Yeah. All right, guys. So I think uh, that was our that was our first section. <laughs> 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 no. Um, so what what do you guys? think for we're about an hour and a half um to, to keep these reasonable times should we do you want to talk about our, our sort of our project section for maybe 15 or 20 minutes and then a little bit about the future and then wrap it up so you guys can yeah. then, um go enjoy yeah. your your day off work although because i i love just bullshitting so much with you guys i could just do this all day i don't care um, <laughs> until i start editing this down I was going to say, if you get bored, call me. I got about a three or four hour drive later today. Oh, nice. Where are you heading to? Oh, oh to work. I work a, I work three hours from the house. So I go down there and spend the week and then come home on the weekend and try to get caught up on all the crap that happened through the week. Wow. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah, that's, that's got to be an interesting experience to be, to be gone. To, do you find, I mean, are you working like longer than eight hour days? Or does that give you a lot of time to shoot uh, because no, you're on your own? I did it the first, uh, the first, I guess, year or so I would spend because I'm at, you know, it's down there, nothing to do. So I would spend 12, 14 hours there. Now I'm, I'm kind of over that romance. So 
yeah, I got a little lot more time to do pretty much other things at that point. At the end of the day, I can go shoot or do whatever I want to do, scan some stuff or whatever, you know, just hang out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm, uh, with the weather cooling off, it's going to be a lot better. We're not going to be 105 degrees every day. Oh, 105 with humidity. Oh, yeah, it's right? amazing. Uh, yeah. It's oh, like 80, 90% humidity. That's why you got no dust on your scans. You got so much water in the area. It's surprising you can just be dry. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Yeah. He's like, the secret is 105 in humidity. Oh, yeah. You got to get your sweat on. Yeah. Start going, hanging your stuff in the sauna. Hey, I'm just here to scan. <laughs> do you have any problems with triax curling on you like the rest of the world does uh no i wouldn't i don't think i do i think uh some of the 2238 tried to curl on me a little bit but it was it was manageable no more than i did some uh developed some rows that i'd found that we had shot probably 14 years ago it was color film but man that stuff was hard as crap to get into the uh the negative holders, the skin, it would, it would fight you every step of the way. Mm. But this stuff yeah, was stored one, in an attic and everything. Like pigtailed on me. Mm-hmm. It I had just one, curling. It was, it was curlicues. I think I saw that one. Yeah, even in your holders, it was doing it, right? Or your, no, uh, that was your sleeves. But, um, you know, who had the really bad role, but I've, I've had one role, one role that, just behaved very differently from the others. Yeah, I don't mind it rolling like that. I can I can manage that. It's when it cups like crazy. I can't stand because it's hard to scan at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I whenever I get those curls on films like like that, I usually just uh, curl it the opposite way and then put it inside a uh, film container. Yeah, just back roll it. Yep, and then it straightens out. But the Triax, no, I don't. I don't mind Triax. I'm just not in love with it either. Are you shooting yeah. in box? I was, yeah. Um, I've uh, I've recently started experimenting with Triax again, and um, heard a conversation. Johnny Sisson shoots it at two fifty, yep. and I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm going to shoot it at two fifty now. And the results have been. It reminds me of old tri triax when you shoot it and develop it that way. Yeah. Yeah. He mentioned that on the uh on the Granny Days podcast. So so just and, over just overexposing it by almost yeah. a stop. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then develop is normal. I think I think films lack more light than we give them. Mm-hmm. I I, I think it's always interesting, right? Because it all depends on process with film. I mean, you have the diehards who shoot Tri-X only at 1600 and develop normally and then down to 250 and develop normally. And I, I, I think now with scanning and maybe not working in the darkroom as much and worrying about graded papers, I think we have a different requirement for the negatives as a starting point to get to an end goal. Um, so I think you really can... Right, because I know some people only want to shoot it this way because it makes the negative more contrasty. And I'm like, but we can add contrast in post now. It's so it's so easy. So I try to shoot myself and develop most of my films to to get as much tonal range in the negatives as I can, so they're relatively flat. 
Yeah, and that that's why I was shooting HP five for so long. For that reason. Yeah. Because yeah. it was yielding a flat negative and it gave me a baseline to work from, whether that meant dark room wet printing or you know, adjusting curves in Lightroom. Um it did it didn't require a lot of additional effort to get to where where get it where I wanted. Yeah, that's right. exactly. That was kind of a heartbreaking and disappointing thing to find out later is like, you know, everybody's looking at Ansel Adams' work and they're like, oh, look at those dark skies and everything. But he was shooting a flat negative too and then doing it all in the dark room, adding all that in there. And mm -hmm. me as being a very, you know, beginner back in the day, I was like, oh, he did. He had to do all that in camera. That's amazing. But no, it hurt my feelings with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was the original Photoshop there. The yeah. Album. There's a, it's not a great documentary it's kind of old and and grainy and i don't remember the name of it but you can youtube it and find it i'm sure but it, it basically his son i think shows uh, i'm sure i don't know if you guys are familiar with his his photograph the moonlight over hernandez or moonrise over hernandez something like that um but it, it, his son in this documentary essentially shows the 25 years of printing of that negative and the original print, the first round, you will, compared to what you buy now in the Ansel Adams Gallery in Yosemite, it's like, they're, they're nothing the same. I mean, they're yeah. nothing the same. No, I'm sure he spent hours in there. Well, it, it basically well, took him about 25 years to get those just deep velvety blacks and the highlights that you see in that final print. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, you know, Rated multi-grade papers are relatively new. You know, mm -hmm. so when he printing, when he was printing, he was had, you know, a stack of 15 different papers and working with all the filters, um, a lot of dodging. Well, I mean, filters weren't really accessible to him. So really it was you bought a contrast two paper and a contrast three and a one and a, you know, so you, then that's how you print it versus mm -hmm. multi-grade papers and, and filters in your enlarger to get to add or, or reduce contrast as you want. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Sure you, he'd, if you he'd probably love Photoshop and ain't I'll play um, Dustin <laughs> yeah. Cocktail for a second and read um, the camera, the print. <laughs> Oh, I've, I've got those books in my closet. Oh, yeah. I need, I need to pull them out. They are yeah, dense reads, for sure. I thought about getting them out and doing a refresher on it. But, and then, I don't know, I don't, get been out, I don't get been out of shape about digital or Photoshop right. or even if somebody took a picture with a camera, a lot of times I'll comment on somebody's stuff on Instagram and they're like, oh, it was taken with an iPhone. I'm like, it doesn't change it for me. I still like it, you know? Mm -hmm. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Yep. Yeah. Sometimes I like it more. Isn't that weird? Because I feel like, I feel like we, we probably all have our own biases about the capabilities of any one tool or process. Yeah. So anytime somebody uses a tool or process that exceeds my expectations of it, I, t I tend to really love it. Yeah, um, like a, the, the sensor in an iPhone is like the corner of a stamp, pretty much. It's very, very tiny. Yeah, it produces amazing results. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
You know how that is, right, Jason? You know, you know how the iPhone uh, camera works? <laughs> Man, I was on iPhone for a long time. <laughs> Wait, is, is he an Android user? I am. He is. He's a, oh. <laughs> Dustin, how do you feel about being a new co-host of... <laughs> and are you using an iPhone? I am. I got the uh, 7 Plus, I think. I'm there still I'm old. There you go. Jason, it's been nice knowing you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, dude. <laughs> because he doesn't like HCB, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I despise the green bubbles. You know, you text somebody and you got the green bubble, you're like, oh, stupid mm. Android. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was a diehard Android user forever. And I loved, and I still actually love them more than iPhones. Um, my work switched to an iPhone. And then um, I found podcasting stupidly easy on an iPhone compared to Android in terms of like following and listening. And that's the only reason I switched is it just, my my Android pod catchers were annoying and they just didn't work consistently in my experience and iTunes works like magic. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm over here now just like thinking, yeah, everything else is limited. I still don't have swipe. The thing can't multitask. It basically sucks, but I can listen to podcasts um, <laughs> with no futzing around. So, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll do it. Yeah, priorities. You got to have yep. them. Yep. I don't know. I've never had any problems with Google Podcasts. It catches everything. You know, I switched a couple years ago, and I was using Stitcher back then. So it could have it could have just been Stitcher, and I'm blaming it on on Android. That being said, I hope this podcast <laughs> makes it to Stitcher <laughs> <laughs> and on Android phones. Yeah, and on Android phones. <laughs> Yeah, it, w- it was quick on Spotify, but the Spotify also owns Anchor, so that's why it probably popped up so mm. quick. Yeah, it ba- basically once you publish this through Anchor, it it publishes to Spotify and Anchor simultaneously, and then sent me an email message saying, "Hey, um, we're working on other uh, distributors, and we'll let you know when they're approved." And and my gut feeling tells me that uh, iTunes will take the longest to to yeah. approve it. Yeah, probably. And probably, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what Justin was telling me that it's going to take quite a bit. Oh yeah, it's the, it's so vanilla, right? And I'm sure that that we we cussed once, double, triple, e explicit. Keep this away from yep. your children. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so we'll we'll have to deal with that. So, um, Dustin, uh, I I was hoping to get your your um your thoughts on the 2238 project like what made you interested in participating in that project and did you have any thoughts i mean i know i know it's like one of the first films you shot and i i forget like how did you stumble across the project was it through negative positives and then in terms of the project did it make you do anything new um did it change your style to to meet the project or did you shoot what you normally just shot and just happened to use that film? So I first came across it, of course, was the negative positive. I'm, and I'm pretty new to Facebook. I've avoided it forever. But the only reason I got on there was for that, uh, the Facebook group, and then saw the 2238. And of course, by the time I saw it, it was closed at that point. 
uh, you'd already had all your your folks in it but and then I'd never shot black and white and then I'd bought a few things to try because I said hey I'm going to try this and I'd bought all the the things like the HC 110 all the crap for tracks but that then seeing that 2238 and it being kind of a a low ISO film and I'm like oh man that worked perfect in my older cameras and it being I guess a, like a niche niche I guess you want to call it type thing not a lot of people shooting it and I was like man that'd be pretty cool to see it and then the the clear film base and everything and so one of the things I thought about doing with it is shooting it developing it and then putting it back into a slide duplicator and shooting it again on 2238 to make a positive and almost make like a slide you know shoot the negative again and but now that you've got the other project going that's a positive i'm pretty excited about that the 2468 so uh and this is where so i've never shot black and white at all and uh i'm a advocate of the digital camera for it's a tool as well so i'm like i gotta learn how to see in black and white so i get out the the sony a6000 crank it in black and white bump some contrast and change some other things and then trying to get it to look you know somewhat like what i'm seeing on the screen as a triax or and so i've kind of pretty much got it there and so then i start taking pictures i'm like man this does not look anything like my color and so then i have to try to adjust it and i'm still in that learning i guess learning phase how to see in black and white it's super hard for me and that's kind of the road i went down and then i so I would I carry my A6000 with me a lot of times and then I'll shoot whatever I'm looking at in that and then I'll kind of look at it and say was well, that what do I need to adjust in order to hopefully get it on 2238 to make it you know I guess pleasant to look at or somewhat mm -hmm. interesting and so that's that's kind of where I'm at with it so still brand new to black and white still trying to learn how to see in that how light falls on things and how I'm trying to not, I'm trying to, now I'm trying to reduce the blackness, like in things <laughs> like tires or whatever. I'm like, it's just too black, you know? So mm -hmm. it's, it's a learning process. And then I've, I've not developed it in the HC110, but I really like the D96 in it. <clears throat> but I think somebody pointed out too that I think they posted a picture of their 2238 and asked, is this digital or is this film? And I think a lot of people, wanted to say digital but you know well, Heather I could say well it's a film photography group so let's go with let's go with film you know just in case <laughs> but I mean it yeah it's like zero grain it's it's so it's just super clean so but now Michael he got some good results shooting at I think the TD3 and he actually got grain in it and I was surprised to see that for the first time yeah that that TD3 is wasn't what I was hoping for when I when I bought the developer, but I think I'm going to keep it in my arsenal of developers because I think somebody pointed out, and I, I you guys can help me out here. I forget what you call it when there's a solvent action of the developer, and it really doesn't necessarily add more. It doesn't make the the grains clump together and make them larger, but it accentuates the edges of the grains, so you get a I think a perceived increase in graininess and a, and a slight perceived increase in sharpness so it's like it's, accu uh, yep so i think i think that's what the 20 the td3 developer has done to it like i still think it's extremely fine grain but but it's actually defining those edges more so you kind of see them um 
but I'd like to try some experiments where I shake the hell out of it to really see if I can increase the grain um, clumping as opposed to just that edge. But yeah, that's, that was, that was interesting, but, but it I definitely guess. did not give me a speed boost. Un unfortunately. Oh, mm. That's kind of neat. But I've got some other things I want to try with it, uh, especially it's still the 2238. I want to, I'm going to run it through some deck tall, see what happens. I've got some old C41 Kims sitting around. They're almost a year old. I've been kind of saving them to see how long they will actually last after mixing. So they're, I think November will be a year. I'm going to try those to see what happens. I might even mm. run that in there and see what happens. Uh, I, I would be curious to see that. The, uh, I, I think you, you, you probably saw, and we've been probably chatting on it, and I'm forgetting, uh, Matt Jones's, uh, he, he took your formula or, or idea and did some 2238 in, I think, the Ilford multigrade paper developer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it looked a little soft, but interesting. And also, I wonder if that's another thing where the accutance was increased because it also looked like there was a little bit of grain and noise. Uh, um, compared to some like the stuff that tony did which is the was the post where he it looked totally grainless and he oh, was yeah, asking yeah. about it being um digital i mean that was that was probably the cleanest i've seen that film ac across the board and it looked i mean it was great it was it was grainless for sure yeah, um, it did have, it did have it all, a digital look. they're gonna be div uh, pretty hot so they will they're going to develop much quicker than a film developer um so that's an interesting experiment he got some mm -hmm. really cool though know. he he did i i like the i think the one thing i've just enjoyed about 2238 across the board is it it does have pretty deep blacks oh, um yeah. compared to other films i shoot which you know have a longer tonal scale and I like the midtones and I like grays, but the, the 2238 does have really deep blacks. And I think Dustin, for you, uh, I think ISO 12 is going to, to, or even six is going to open up those blacks quite a bit in the HC 110 development. I like it because it's got the super black, and then it's got you can also you can get up wide in there too. I don't know if you saw that the one image from the it was like a Bebop record shop. It was closed down, but Man, there was some super dark blacks in there, and then the bebop the sign is actually white. And I was like, I dang, the tonal range of this thing's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. but, and that's one I should rescan with that stupid digitizer to get the sprocket hose because the windows remind me of sprocket hose. But I don't know if I'll fight that battle or not. <laughs> oh, that that would be cool. I'd love to see it if you do. Well, all right, I'll try it too. <laughs> Hell yeah. It's gonna be a lot of swear words. <laughs> yeah, why don't you? record that <laughs> we want to try you can record a guest snippet for us of yeah any grumble do you want bitch, a bitch. two pieces of a digitizer <laughs> so michael you said something to pick my intro you said that the the td3 you were you were expecting um an iso bump how are you measuring because I've heard that I think it's about it. Like diaphine is one that you get a you get an additional stop. Yeah. So the you know the TD three was designed. It, it sounds like specifically to give um, 
TechPan a one, a full stop push, right? So it was designed for TechPan and to allow you to shoot TechPan, I think up to ISO 64 and, you know, re recover the shadow detail and whatever, and then, but still keep it super fine grain for enlargement purposes. Um, so that's, that's essentially even in the, the package insert for the TD3, you know, they say this is designed for this push for TechPan. Um, and because they call this the poor man's tech pan, and I don't know how, how much different 2238 is from tech pan overall, I was hoping that it would have a similar effect. So I shot the film at ISO 25, and normally I shoot it at 12, and then I developed it. And my shadows were just, you know, they, they were just more crushed um, than I'm used to in D76 at ISO 12. So it just felt to me that I didn't get a one-stop push um, from it. Like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go and shoot that film at ISO twelve for TD three again. Like the shadows were too blocked up for my taste, and I dialed the film back to ISO twelve, and it looks. I, I like the look in that developer at ISO twelve. I just, you know, and I could probably maybe do some multi-pass scanning or something and, and open that up. But just as a, as a regular scan, it just, it didn't give me that push that I was hoping was going to be there. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. I yeah. think that Rodinol and HC 110 do better at ISO 25 from other people's work uh, than TD three or even Xtal. Xtal seems, I think if you wanted to, a flat scan and the most tonal range and the most speed so far, it seems like Xtal is the, is the developer that does universally the best with that film. In, in my yeah, opinion. And it's a one-to-one for 25. Yeah. Yep. And Xtal comes in powder, right? Is that the only way to get it? Or is it liquid? Yeah. Well? Yeah. It's powder. It's, it's a powder developer for a five liter batch. Oh. Yeah. Um, which is really not that difficult to deal with. I mean, I just have, I use, you know, liter size um, Arizona green tea bottles. Mm -hmm. And I just keep them. And, you know, when I when I mix up a fresh batch of Xtal, just split them between the five. And I mix one to one, so I just go one liter to the next as they as I exhaust them. Gotcha. Yeah, and there's there's two exceptions to that. Um, Arista makes, and that I was looking at this the last Friday when we were freestyle. Arista makes a, a an ascorbic acid powder, or it might be Foma. So I, I could have this wrong. There is another one liter. Um, package out there that you can get of ascorbic acid developer from freestyle if you don't want to do the five liters oh. and and then i think that that arista also makes one that's the an equivalent to Xtol that's a that's a liquid but it might not actually be an ascorbic acid but they say this is an equivalent to Xtol and it's it's a liquid format um i haven't tried either of those i think that other one might might be a fomadon now that i'm sort of digging back into it uh the the one liter package okay. that sounds right yeah that yeah. sounds right and yeah. i'm but you know extol the the powders 
less than twenty dollars for a five liter batch. Um, right, right. It's so it's that, totally economical. I, I I'll mix it up and and you know like you get a lot of use out of it. And mm-hmm. you know it's not for everyone to have five liters of developer mixed sitting somewhere. Right, right. You know what though? I have a I right. have a five liter jug for X call. It's not that big. You know what I mean? Like it's it's funny because I think we've all seen the the brown one liter. Um, typical chemistry bottles or the two liter ones, they look massive. And then mm-hmm. somehow the five liter one doesn't actually look a ton bigger, but it mm-hmm. holds, but it holds five liters. So I just, I buy that and I mix up x in that five liters. And, and that's what I've been using. And I, and I just looked it up just so we have it. It's the Fomadon XL W27 powder that freestyle sells. That's an ascorbic acid developer that you can get in the one liter um size okay and they say it's it's good for 12 rolls of film and it's less than nine bucks yep i see it right and like i said i think there's a liquid version of it out there i just i forget what that is and i couldn't find it and and i think they used to sell xtol a few years ago when i first started using it in the one liter packets also but I think that was the, the – there's something about that size where you hear all the horror stories of Xtol just totally, absolutely failing and not working from one roll to the next. And I think it, it has something to do with that volume. If, if you mix it in that volume, maybe it's so dilute that it just isn't stable. Because my 5-liter I had for probably – the last two I've had probably for up to a year, and they never failed. And I didn't do anything fancy, right? I just, I used them at full strength or I'd mix it one-to-one as a one-shot and I didn't like get all the air out of my bottle and I just left it sit like normal in a five liter thing and it never went bad. Hmm. <clears throat> but I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust it. <laughs> because I'm gun shy, I do sometimes keep like little short rolls of film around and do like, six shots and then develop that first if i've left my xtol sit for a really long time mm-hmm. just to make sure gotcha yeah i've heard the um that when xtol dies it dies quickly yep I, i've heard that and i haven't experienced it but because i know that's sort of the working idea i and, you know, and I think because a lot of us are bulk rolling, we have that option to roll up short rolls. And I just literally go out in the front yard, take four or five frames real quick, slap it in there and develop it. And if it looks good, I don't even bother fixing it. You know what I mean? I just pull it out. If I see images on there, I just then use it for my actual film. What oh, is smart. All right, guys. So I think we're uh, I think we're probably getting close to wrapping this up. What do you guys think, um, Dustin? Yeah. Do you have any any uh, future projects or specific things uh, you're going to be doing that uh, we can sort of follow along the ultra low or the twenty two thirty eight group? Definitely getting on. Continue to shoot twenty two thirty eight and uh, adjust my 
ISO on there and play around with that a little bit. I saw someone shot it at 400. And it actually turned out pretty decent. Um, so some experimentation oh, there, some different damn. developers. Um, then, of course, the 2468, pretty excited about that. See how that comes out. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to launch that project with you guys. And and for anybody listening to this, this podcast who doesn't know Dustin or isn't as integrated in these groups, and I think, you know, who knows, at some point we'll reach sort of outside of this circle of influence. But Dustin is an amazing artist and has done all kinds of artwork mm -hmm. for our for this podcast for, for my etsy store for the upcoming 2468 project he designed the labels he made us these awesome podcasting t-shirts which i have now the collector's edition of which i'm so excited about <laughs> um, and i'm wearing it right now without yeah, just, my pants sorry guys um just a horrible it. speller. <laughs> Jesus. No pants? Dude, what's so funny about that is I didn't even know. Notice it. I, I thought that was cool. Okay. I thought you had the podcast with your ultra little ISO club t-shirt, no pants. I just Yeah, that's the way that's you were supposed to I'm do. Nervous. Yeah. That's the way you gotta roll. Yes. <laughs> and whenever they you guys said that to me, I ran back and well, for those that don't know. So we made all that. You printed labels. We made a, there's actually four t-shirts in existence that say angel wood instead of eagle wood, angel wood. Yeah. And yep. then, uh, so I went back and I was like, no way. I ran to the laundry, got my shirt, look, son of a bitch. And so <laughs> I run, I go <laughs> grab my, run, grab my iPad, jump on, uh, my little program there real quick, go to your folder and I look and I'm like, what? The proof's right there. It's good. It says Inglewood. And then I'm looking, oh, son of a, so I had the proof. Everything was good. And then somehow, I don't know what happened. The proof got, I don't, so I must've grabbed a different one and then copied from there and it went crazy after that. <laughs> so how many times did you curse my name while you were doing all um, that? I'm putting out a <laughs> Craigslist is not dead in Southern California <laughs> because I'm putting an ad on there for 20 bucks to kick it in the nuts. <laughs> I'll do it for uh, 50. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good, that was a good catch. So there was a, there were several orders out there pending, so I went and canceled them and sent them a note. Hey, sorry, misspelling, canceled it. Then I, you know, if you want to order again, fine. If you don't, fine. Um, and then I contacted Matt Jones, which is it. He's in Thailand, so he's like, oh, man, I don't care. I'm like, no, I'm, I said, I'm going to send you new shirts. It's, you know, that's just not right. And he's like, no, it doesn't matter. He said, nobody here can read English anyway. He said, there's grandmas <laughs> running around with sex pistol shirts on with profanity, and it's English, so it's cool. I'm like, all right, whatever. So. It, it is really cool yeah i told um, him that we'd be doing a, a long sleeve t-shirt probably this week and i'd send him one of those with the correct spelling and everything <laughs> yeah yeah because the uh the heat's gonna hopefully die down here in southern california so we're gonna need those long sleeves that's right he said he needs them to not get sunburned <laughs> yeah this, this is true yeah it's you know it, I just, I, dude, I appreciate your art so much, mm -hmm. and I and I appreciate all like you helping me with sort of branding the, oh, the yeah. Etsy store and this podcast in general. I, I just, I think it fits the vibe like really, really well, and it it, it brings me a lot of joy to look at these labels and and this logo and, and just right and and really like 
Austin came up with the ultra low ISO club. Like that was, that was entirely your idea. He sent me the things like, Hey, look what I made. You should. And, and so this whole sort of the, the podcast idea has been brewing for a while, but tying it into the ultra low ISO club and then making the group, at least from my perspective, was really influenced by Dustin making that logo in the first place. Yeah. Um, and that's so, mainly sitting around at night board. So I get on there and I doodle and draw or whatever. And then I try not to flood people out with stuff. So I just do a little whatever. I've got all kinds of crap on in my that I've drawn or did or whatever. And I just, mm-hmm. it just kind of sits there and I enjoy it for myself, I guess. <laughs> I have an Ishiku Matt sketch you did for me. Oh, it's yeah. That- yeah, I think, uh, let's see, was that, I don't remember if we put that one on the shirt. We did put a TLR on the shirt. I can't remember if that was the one or not, but several people have bought that thing. But yeah, definitely, uh, I know negative positives is wanting to do some merch, and there's a learning yep. curve with that, especially if you're doing a drop shipper in a Etsy store type thing. Mm-hmm. I ran a deal with a guy here in Mississippi. I mean, it's a great thing to... Uh, do one-off t-shirts you can pretty much design whatever you want print one t-shirt good to go but i did him one and we did it through the etsy store and he bought two shirts and i i cleared 17 cents on that transaction and had he not bought two i'd have actually paid like three bucks for him to get two shirts (laughs) but so there's a learning curve there and we're definitely not making any money off the shirts Uh, there's too many variables there so the pricing is kind of weird and whatever so what we're thinking about well what i'm thinking about doing is anything that's made off of the uh t-shirts is turn around and buy kodak stock i know i sent ed a thing the other day said keep buying kodak gold make me rich yeah because <laughs> <laughs> i just yeah. bought like seven seven more shares of kodak <clears throat> but it, that's it, that's an awesome thing to to think about if if you every time i'm buying something from your etsy store that you're you're using it to support kodak i love it I've been kind of watching. I mean, it's at the bottom right now. It's like two forty for a share or whatever. But if the predictions are right, we're going to start getting it for like a penny a share here shortly. Wow! And then, uh, yeah. So, but and then Fuji's going to buy them. And then five years when it, it hits two dollars a share, hell, good to go. So, so Dustin, do you mind um, while we're on here to give us your and I'll. I'll include it in the show notes too. Uh, mm-hmm. Your Etsy store uh, name, so if oh, anyone's yeah. interested, they can go grab a, a shirt. And I, I'd love to see your your work supported because you, you've been so generous to me and this stuff in in what you've made for us. And I just and I and I think the work is awesome, and I just like to to see it be supported. Yeah, yeah you can find me on Etsy. I'm just a DW Illustrates, all one word. I know in the top, when you go there, there'll be this huge thing that says read announcement and it looks all crazy. But the only thing it's telling you is that Etsy's still holding the money for like three days. So until your money clears, then then I have to pay the drop shipper. And so I was at the beginning, I was paying the drop shipper and then, you know, worrying about money to clear later. But I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, three days, we can wait three days. So that's all it's saying is once you're, you're the shipping will be delayed by like three days, pretty much. But it's right. DW Illustrates right there on Etsy. Uh, you can find me pretty much anywhere under DW Nickerson. I think sometimes it's got like a D and then a dot, then a W, then a dot, then Nickerson. I think that's Instagram. And everywhere else, I'm just DW Nickerson. Pretty easy. 
Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking. Uh, I was uh, showing Michael some uh, some sloth pictures last night. I said hmm, maybe I can have uh, Dustin do something with the with the sloth and the camera and some twenty two thirty eight or something. <laughs> yeah. Anytime. Okay. I'll anytime send you. you I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll send you some ideas. Yeah, you can send me anything, man. I'm I'm open. I'm available. I enjoy Hello. it. I have fun. Now, Michael, he got one of my special artworks in the in the mail. I think with a box of uh, <laughs> so the stuff you see is oh, I draw yeah. all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Some of it's not fit for other people's <laughs> yeah. eyes. Yeah, I I, I I wish Ed knows. Ed has met my girlfriend, Jason and Dustin. You have not, so you don't you you can't hear her accent. But I was like opening that stuff up, and and I like I thing open and i hear from behind me what the hell <laughs> and this, this perfectly awesome kenyan accent of like what the, the hell is that <laughs> so i could just imagine what what her face looked like when she said that dude and when she saw it, yeah it, exactly she, yeah. she, she just kind of looked at me funny it's like shook her head like you guys are weird <laughs> that was that was a really awesome gift actually i love it yeah, yeah, I was just sitting there at my desk when I wrote it, and I had several pens laying there, so I just started grabbing them. Uh, Jason, we could share that with you. I think I've still got a picture of it. But it's probably not fit <laughs> for everybody's ass. Yeah. yeah I'll, <laughs> I'll send it out to this group, and for any listeners, you know, we, we, we maybe have added something tantalizing to your life or saved your eyeballs from from something you don't want to see i'm not sure <laughs> and uh, oh, just yeah. for for anyone listening dustin's store has some really really fun shirts like the swizzle stick one um mm -hmm. an astronaut with, with a camera that's actually one, one of my favorites even outside of the the ultra low iso club t-shirt which i also love uh, he's got a Pentax 67 the sonar lens shirt i dig that's probably going to be in my future as well. I, I don't know why, maybe it's the classic lenses podcast has really shifted me into some lens nerdiness lately. And I, I, like I dig seeing that design on a t-shirt. Yeah. And yeah. That I podcast get, is if I could get man. away from that, if not, I could get away from the Etsy store as being the storefront, then there would definitely be, I could probably offer them shirts at a lower price. They're, they're quality shirts. I'm not, putting out there you know the seven dollar gildan shirt or whatever so they're, mm -hmm. they're quality shirts they're soft i think i've laundried mine probably 10 15 times no you know no color change no shrinkage they yeah. seem to run true to size so it's a quality shirt i think yeah no it's it's super nice and i i know what you mean it's it's interesting because you know the etsy store does it's it makes it really easy for people to come in and buy something and for you to handle Mm -hmm. sort of shipping and keeping track of stuff but there are some there are some quirks about it um, yeah. right like every every time you sell a shirt i'm sure it charges you a relisting fee for the for the for the next shirt and just like yeah. little things like that where I, i've had to, to do something similar where to just to keep the cost to break even you have to add some some cost in there which is like i could sell all this stuff cheaper somewhere else but not easier that's right. It's super easy. But then, of course, you don't know where people are buying from. And then, the, you know, that you're getting charged their tax, too. So, yep, it gets crazy at that point. So. Yep. 
But I think that there's such a great deal anyway that it's like, eh, you know, it's like, come on. But definitely if there's something more you guys want to see or draw up or whatever, shoot me an idea. Most time I'm I'm available, especially in the evenings during during the week. So Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll send you the the stuff I was sending Michael last night. Um see if we can make something like that happen. (laughs) Yeah, I think I think we need a rangefinder romance t shirt. (laughs) <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah, yeah. Let's put across these across a range Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I can see it. Yeah, you can have like the US map and you can have Michael's head from California <laughs> and Jason's uh where, where the heck are you anyway? Pennsylvania that year. Pennsylvania. Yeah, and then just the head and then the little rangefinders just looking at each other. I don't know. <laughs> I'll put something together. <laughs> That'd be so funny. It, it would be hilarious. It looks good in my head right now, but yeah, that hey, romance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be so great. That would be so great. It's it's so fun <laughs> to have been inspired and have access to to you guys and, and to Dustin and the negative positives group because they really sort of made all all right all this stuff come together from sharing and collaborating. It's it, Mm-hmm. Like a, a super enjoy it and, and definitely like to give uh, Mike Gutterman and Andre Dominguez that shout out for for creating that community, um, which really has borne all this stuff from from that community. Yeah, there's a lot of good things happening out there for him coming from that community. Yep, I, yeah. I, I think so. And more to come, I'm sure. I I hope so, actually. All right, guys. I think uh, I think we're pretty good. We're this is super long. Um, eh, not that not that bad actually. Um, so do we? Do we, Does anyone have anything they want to say in closing, or uh, just wrap this up? I'm just yeah, gonna let I'm just gonna up. let Ed know that I'm not a lack of snob, and my favorite camera right now is the FM2. Yes, <laughs> yes. I got an SLR buddy with me. Screw you, rangefinders. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but he also said he didn't want to bias us of IPM too. So Ed, he could just be like, you know, <laughs> tricking you. And then like when he sends I that M two, next thing you know, Ed's gonna be like, I sold all of my Lomos and bought an M two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you'll have to check it out, Ed. Yeah, you guys, I'll check it out. You guys yeah, keep it a yeah. month or so. Okay. Although the interesting uh, thing is, to be honest, that you know, look, I've been looking into it lately. The M2 is really not that expensive of a camera compared to like an M6 or something like that. Um, oh no, it's oh, it's still yeah, they're crazy expensive, right? Mm-hmm. So I I feel like for most hobbyists that it's, it's it's not like totally disposable income for the M2, but it's it's surprisingly less expensive than I thought it was going to be. Okay. I yeah, would say that they're not about, about M body Leicas is that you're likely going to have to put in a couple hundred bucks to get them going. 
on yep. top of whatever your price is. Right. So build that into your budget. You know, if that's yeah. Um, well, it just seems like every like a person I hear or talk about their camera, they say they love it or whatever, but I got to send it to the shop because something didn't, isn't aligned right or I got to do this. And it's just like, I don't got time for that. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're, well, I, I need a dependable. I need a dependable shooter, and it doesn't sound uh, like yeah. that. I mean, it sounds like it's it, it's a uh, you know it can produce great images and whatever, but so can the Canon P and some of these other ones or my little my my little Olympus art. <laughs> but but yeah, I don't know, dude. I'm yeah. just very cheap when it comes to this stuff. On no, some some of the things, you know. I totally get yeah. it. You know, it's like I'm I. Yeah, I'm in the same place. Like there is there is a certain attraction to picking up an M2. Um and I've hailed a couple of them and there, there definitely is a, a an undeniable quality mm -hmm. in like the way that it's designed and machined. And I'm I I'm not I know that it's not going to improve my my ability to, to make images. Right. I mean, I, and I think most of us realize that, you know, like, mm -hmm. I, and I, there is, we have styles of cameras or particular models that just feel right. Yeah. And that's what we use. Yeah. It's just, they're just like cars. Cars is a means of transportation, but we got 45, 50 different models because people like different things, you know? Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the one thing I, I will just sort of add to that, that caveat is that I think, I think too many people in general are buying classic cameras and not doing them the service that they should have. Like all these cameras are 35 plus years old. They all need to get a CLA and they all need 150 to $200 worth of work before we just keep running them and stripping gears and breaking mm -hmm. shit that is mm -hmm. becoming irreplaceable. And I think, I think the one thing about probably about Leica shooters is because of the prestige and because of the upfront cost, I do think they're more likely to do what we all should be doing with all of our favorite classic cameras, which is getting them properly maintained and properly lubed before we go out and burn 40 rolls of film. Through them. Right? Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, none of my Canons and Nikons probably should have film run through them before they get CLA just because they are old and the grease is old and, 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 you know, whales died for these things. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't hurt Leica to know that they like is still producing film cameras. And so they can continue to service even, you know, M2s, M3s that haven't been manufactured for, say, 52 years, 62 years? Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. easy. Right. And I was actually sad. I was at the Leica store yesterday checking out that, um, that Cartier-Bresson exhibit that they have at the Leica store in West L.A. And, you know, they have no film cameras for sale there, right? I think they're done selling film cameras now. So they had... They had one M6 and like an M3 in a display case, and otherwise it was all uh, digital cameras for sale, which was yeah, which was a little bit of a bummer. And I also thought it was ironic because 
you know, the whole top floor of their store, which is a really gorgeous gallery space, was dedicated to this film photography, right? And it's like, and the and the and the prints were selling um, for twenty to thirty thousand dollars. Damn! Right, and Jesus. and then you're like, hey, you've got photos upstairs that are selling for thirty grand from a camera that you made sixty years ago, and now you don't even make one of those cameras and i don't quite really i'm sure they made an economic decision but it's a bummer and and it felt ironic yeah but aren't our aren't, aren't all like stop using film cameras i think two years ago um and i and i think leica is leica's in the same market because they are competing against their own users market you know, it's yeah. it's difficult for even a storied brand like Leica to justify producing a film camera today when there are, you know, because they were built um, with such high quality components and they've been serviced so well that they're competing against their own used market. You know, so what could Leica mm-hmm. do today um, in producing a new film camera? that's going to displace the position of the M2, the M3 for the unmetered rangefinders or an M6? That's a, that's a good question. You know I, mean, I, mean? Just, like I, I feel like they make so many digital cameras that they have so much overlap in that market. And there's such a, a niche prestige. I mean, if you're buying a, if you're buying a brand new Leica, you're not, a, you're, you're not, my sense is you're not a, an average user you're a you're a weird collector or it's a status symbol or something right like so i think i don't see why continuing to make a film market or a film camera for that market impinges on anything because i don't know who goes out and buys a a four thousand dollar aps sensor that's ostensibly not any better than a fuji or a sony product it, except for that it's in a case that is slightly more attractive, but the actual sensing quality, I just, you know, may, and maybe it's my own ignorance. I, I don't pretend to actually know how I don't shoot those cameras, but I just can't imagine. I mean, look at the, uh, look at the Leica uh, Instax camera and the Leica Instax film. The Leica Sofort. <laughs> yeah, the Sofort. And then the Instax film costs more. And it's like, we know it's the same damn film. Yeah. As soon as you put a Leica symbol on it, you charge three dollars more a pack. I don't know who buys that, but I'm sure somebody does. Somebody does. Well, that camera is also the same as the Fuji uh, Mini Ninety. Fuji makes that Leica camera, that Leica Instax. Yeah, that that's my sense. I I don't know for sure, but I believe it. It seems exactly no, the same. I, yeah, no, I know for sure because I have. It's the same thing. I didn't buy the Leica. Oh, actually, I am a Leica owner. Oh, shit. Uh, oh, yeah. shit. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, I am a Leica owner. I own the Instax uh, version of it. I won it in a competition. And on today's podcast, um, we uncover Ed's dirty little secret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. Oh, damn. I totally forgot that I did own it. Oh, look at that. I haven't well, shot it. I'm going to bring it out next I'm time. Putting that in the intro. Out. It's their little secret. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and yeah, but I, I did a um, I did a uh, 
um, a, a test between the, the Fuji 90, because I had the, um, and then I submitted this, uh, it was like a double exposure thing that Emulsive was having, um, that M was having on, on his site, and I, I, I won that Leica Sofort and the crap load of monochrome film. That's like three or four years ago. So I've, I've had it since, and, and I, like and I actually monochrome. prefer, to tell you the truth, I actually prefer that camera to the Fuji for some reason. I don't know if it's just because of the red button or, or the square body, but, um, um, but yeah. But yeah, it's identical to the same thing. They use the same battery. Um, I don't know why Leica says the, the lens is a hectare or some crap like that, but, uh, but yeah, it's the same thing. Oh, so yeah, I am a Leica guy. <laughs> ah. And I will point out to you, Ed, is that with your love <laughs> of Fuji digital cameras, you're shooting a rangefinder. Then the Sony sensor. Yes. <laughs> yep. But I, have, but I have Fuji colors. And I have 13 different, like I was telling Michael the other day, I, was, I go, man, I'm, I, got, I got one camera and I got 13 different types of uh, film types in here. That's right. I wish I Sony would get on board with that. Yeah. I would, uh, yeah. Somebody would the, get on board with Kodak. I mean, can you imagine Kodak just being able to sell that technology, you know, transferring all their stocks into a format that they can just put it into a camera, like so work with like Olympus it. or Sony? Yeah, just do the same thing what Fuji's doing. Or just brand us a new Kodak camera. Yeah, they did work with Nikon for a while when they first came out with digital. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, but yes, I like the red dot. Ed <laughs> <laughs> comes, comes full circle. He is going to fucking Dude. buy an M2, I can tell. I can tell. <laughs> yeah, but. You don't see a red dot on an M2. Yeah, no, no red dot there. That's you don't true. I, you it has to have a red dot. Or else oh, the, red dot there is two. Like, There's two red dots in the film rewind. All right. But as far as like the red <laughs> dot, you know, badge over the over the bayonet mount, like that wasn't until what? Uh, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing it's got to be like the M6. Or the 4, I think. The four had a lot of huge red dots, and if you had the four uh, P, I think it was it had a, like two huge red dots on it. Mm. Interesting. All right. Well, I'll bring it out next time we uh, we hang out, dude. Nice. This will be this will be exciting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, now if they only made pictures. an ultra low ISO film for Instax, we could we could work it into the show. Ed shooting his Leica. Yeah. <laughs> see. I'll send you guys. I think I have a selfie of me shooting it. Just you guys. That's right. <laughs> All right, guys. I think uh, I think we should wrap it up. And um, Dustin, thanks for. Thanks for being on. It's actually really great to get to chat. I haven't actually talked to you, even though for months we've been chatting and sharing images and you've been making all kinds of cool shit. So it's really great to hear your voice and, and get you on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to hear my own voice. It cracks me up. That one time I sent you that, I was driving and I sent you that uh, 
a message, I think. Because oh, I, that's anyway. right. I you, you did. I forgot about that. And then I played it back in the car. I was like, I wonder if that was loud enough. And I heard, man, I just started cracking up. And I was like, God dang. <laughs> uh, thanks, right, everyone. And enjoy the holiday. And we'll chat with, um, chat with you guys in like an hour on Facebook. Yeah. Good. <laughs> actually chat with you in a few minutes <laughs> <laughs> right exactly uh, i'm gonna stop recording all Let's right go. thanks Maybe. yeah bye. bye guys and that's a wrap for this week if you'd like to see dustin's work you can find it in the ultra low iso club facebook group or on our instagram feed at ultra.low.iso.club if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode or have questions and comments, please feel free to contact us through the Ultra Low ISO Club Facebook group or email us at ultralowisoclub at gmail.com. And last but not least, we'd like to thank Dwayne Crowder for allowing us to use his song, Misconceptions, as our bumper music.